I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Trinidad and Tobago, a twin island nation located just off the northern coast of the South American mainland, about 11 kilometers or 7 miles from Venezuela. It is the southernmost of the West Indies island group and today is home to around 1.3 million people. Trinidad, the southernmost and larger of the two islands, has a landmass of around 4,700 square kilometers or 1,800 square miles, comprising 93% of the country's territory. Tobago, around 40 kilometers or 25 miles to the northeast, is around 300 square kilometers or 120 square miles in total. The islands enjoy a warm tropical climate and only have two seasons, a dry season for the first five months of the year and a wet season for the remaining seven. Mm. Occupied by Amerindian tribes up until 1498, the islands were then discovered by Christopher Columbus and later became a Spanish colony. Sovereignty over the islands was disputed throughout the 19th century before the two were unified as one British colony in 1888. Independent since 1962, the country has benefited greatly from the discovery of oil in 1857, and today is one of the richest and most ethnically diverse countries in the region. Trinidad and Tobago is also famous for its extravagant carnival celebrations and is known as the birthplace of limbo dancing. Up top, let's talk about some things that we're interested to learn about in this episode. Joe, how about you go first? One interesting thing I came across is that the origin of a, a plant that many people use every day is uh, possibly to be found in this region. Cool. Though they shouldn't. They shouldn't be using this plant. Okay. Mark, what about you? There's an appearance by a, an 80-day all-star which uh, influences... Possibly the worst reaction to a squatter getting moved on by a landlord. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm interested to talk about. That sounds interesting. Okay, I have a couple. One is um, one is the scorpion chili, which is native to Trinidad and is, is nice. one of the hottest chilies in the entire world. I believe held the Guinness World Record up until a couple of years ago. And also the strangest lake I've ever come across in researching any of our episodes to date. And I, I have one... It's amazing how many musical styles and dances and stuff that you just assume are kind of ubiquitous are all from Trinidad. Like they seem to have invented a lot of cool things. And a surprising amount of American celebrities were born here and left at the age of eight or nine. It seems to be the key to success is be born in Trinidad and then leave. And then very swiftly move on. (laughs) Okay, sure. So some pre-Columbian history, Joe, you're going to talk about some of, some of that for us, the early history of Trinidad. Yes, you'll never guess how I'm going to start this section. Um, Did they write a lot of stuff down? They didn't write a lot of stuff down, no. Yes! 
Oh, move great. on. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of more uh, an archaeology run through than a history run through, of course, because there's history requires written sources. Bunch of old stones. There's a there's a good book I came across by Dr. Ari Boomert, I think is her name. Native Trinidadian, I assume. I think she's at the University of the West Indies, which oh, I'm really? not sure where that oh, is. Okay. But uh, she she knows her way around the, the area um, and is a researcher in sort of... I don't know about you guys, but I, I have some great names in this episode. I'm, I'm sure you guys probably do too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True, true. So between that and a few other sources, I kind of cobbled together a timeline that are going to race through. Basically, there's, there's evidence that there's been people here since about 8,000 years ago or nine or, nine or 8,000 years ago, right. which is a long time ago. Obviously, we're relying on archaeology for pre-Columbian prehistory because there, there isn't so much writing or any writing. And of course, we that means we have no idea what languages people spoke or what ethnicity they were. And it's kind of tenuous to link a particular culture group to, you know, an ethnic group that exists now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can make some educated guesses about where things link up. And as we've come across before, middens are really important. Can you remind me um, what a midden is? These are the massive piles of trash that people leave behind. Oh, right. Mm. Dumps. Yeah. Yes, dumps. But nicer because they're archaeologically useful. Because of history. Imagine the wonders they'll find in our middens. Um, I think that was where our, our racist tweet mines came from, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The economy is oh, yeah. entirely based on racist tweets. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so particular importance are things called Chip Chip Hills. So Chip Chip is, is one of is the kind of local name for a particular kind of clam. Um, okay. That's... That's popular and apparently apparently delicious. Sounds tasty, Walter yeah. Raleigh commented on its deliciousness. Um, so it must be good. That makes up a lot of the waste, so that I assume they were eating a lot of clams. A lot of the sites can be carbon dated, but uh, there's also petroglyphs which can't because they are, you know, ancient rocks. Um, so there is a really cool petroglyphic site in Carita in the Northern Range. Kind of unsure when that's from, uh, but it's got really cool very striking images of what seems to be like a pregnant woman raising her hands to the sky and a few other figures. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means, but it looks definitely intentional. <laughs> wasn't just some wind erosion. Like, this was a, right. this is presumably of some cultural importance. Sure. And there was one other petroglyph that used to be visible, but has now been washed away by a river or something. So... That said, Trinidad is probably the oldest settled island in the West Indies, uh, possibly even so footfall before it was an island. So before the end of the last ice age, Trinidad and Tobago, they're actually continental uh, land. So they're part of the continental shelf of South America. Yeah. Unlike the other Antilles, which are actual, you know, islands. There were probably people wandering around here, at least intermittently, while it was attached to mainland. Maybe some got stranded, maybe some decided to stay. It, like it wasn't an instant thing. Uh, is, is, it's kind of a gradual um, separation over centuries or millennia. Is, is it worth mentioning for people who weren't aware to just like how flipping close it is to Venezuela? Like on oh, the map, yeah. it's like just you. You yeah. should, I assume, be able to see Trinidad and Tobago. Sorry, Trinidad, particularly from the coast of Venezuela. You just stand on the coast and look out, mm. and there's good old Trinidad. Yeah, for sure. It's 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 what uh, eleven kilometers, I think. So it makes sense that it's you know it's the most. Uh, the earliest settled uh, Caribbean island and so on. It's, it's it's very easy to find. Yeah, and there's a peninsula in Venezuela uh, that basically almost touches the northern mountain yeah. range of, of Trinidad. But but interestingly, a lot of the communication by sea probably came from the south out of the Orinoco Delta, which is sort of the Guyanas and Suriname, oh, that yeah. kind of region. 
uh, because the prevailing currents kind of bring plants and, and driftwood and anyone who wants to travel in a boat, yeah. you know, that's the easy way to go. So that that seems to be the majority of, of uh, communication between cultures seems to have been from actually not the closest bit of land, but the easiest bit of land to get to by sea. Mm, right. It would have been mostly rainforest this time. And a lot of the flora and fauna are connected to the Orinoco district. So that's kind of cool. Uh, so we're going to see a few links to our, our Suriname episode as we go through. It'll be a lot of familiar kind of cultural developments, both before and after European contact. So tools from the Lithic Age suggest that people were hunting small games. This is like nine to 8,000 years ago. Then a second wave of settlers called the Archaic Period uh, would have been from like 7,000 years ago to 300 BC. So kind of a big window. And... These people, the term ortoiroid is used to describe that that kind of culture. That's an unattractive name. Mm. It is. It's named after some place. You know, as as all these names are all named after some site where the first right. example was discovered. One of the most important archaeological sites in Trinidad is the Benwari Trace, which was discovered in 1969. It's from about six to 4,000 years ago. Various settlements on top of each other. And it's helped understanding how people migrated from South America to the Lesser Antilles, probably passing through Trinidad en route to the other islands. So this seems to have been the route towards colonising the Caribbean in the first place. Right. They were hunters, fishers, foragers, and they did a little bit of kind of gardening, not quite farming, but you'd see a plant you'd like and you'd tend it and look after it and get rid of the weeds. That's kind of farming. Uh, and then it's like, eat it. you know. Yeah, they call it incipient horticulture. Um it's Again, not quite. It, it's not, not quite. Sound that nice. No, <laughs> no. It sounds very close to. Incipient. It's not quite the monoculture. Like it's not a whole field of wheat. But of course, it's... when we did it, it was farming. But when they did it, it was uh, <laughs> perverse uh, gardening. No, no, God. <laughs> and uh, the stoneware shows trade with Venezuela and maybe Tobago as well. It's not one hundred percent sure Tobago was occupied. Yeah, we, well. we should. We should probably mention actually early on that. Uh, the history yeah. of Trinidad and Tobago are somewhat separate up until sort of what around uh, the late 1800s, right? Or 1880. Yeah. 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 But so, they're very close. Yeah. We will be kind of jumping back and forth between the two a little bit um, because they, they do have quite distinct histories up until uh, the 20th century. So, mm, But constantly overlapping sure, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Around three thousand five hundred to a thousand BC, people definitely reached Tobago. There's, there's, um, there's clear evidence there of, of human occupation. Uh, they would have eaten a range of edible roots, there's palm starch and seeds in their diet, uh, and they hunted sea turtles, shellfish, crabs, and then some land mammals I'd never heard of, collared peccaries. Which are like it? They look like a pig, but they're not. Oh, a pig. I think I know these things. Uh, I I was in. They're called a muskog or a quenk in the local language. I was in uh, a, a kind of resorty area of Mexico about two years back, and everywhere around the resort there were these little kind of pig-like things, just darting mm. in and out, kind of like a slender, hairy pig. That sounds uh, about right. And yeah, they're flipping, flipping everywhere. Uh yeah, uh, and it I guess not too dissimilar. In it. it was like in the kind of the Yucatan area, so sim- similar. Oh wow! Similar, um, similar continent. Yeah, <laughs> similar similar uh, vibes. But uh, yeah, I'm yeah. looking at these things now. They they just yeah they look like sort of like very fuzzy looking sort of warthog kind of things. They're uh, yeah. yeah 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 they're they're pretty cool looking. 
They must be tasty anyway. There's lots of uh, lots of color peccary bones left Very in nice. the sure. historical record. Um, so in, in 250 BC, so we're, get, we're getting a bit closer. So that's only that's like five thousand years done now. Um, the <laughs> the saladoid culture oh, moves man. in this this what? kind of series of uh, archae- this archaeological series, and they bring in the ceramic age, which is is one of the important lines in in South American history. Sure. Um, is it you got your archaic age and your ceramic age where pottery becomes the thing? Saladoid sounds like um, a so that's the new like, a, like a modern fad diet to me, kind of like it does. Or, robot salamander. And, yeah, yeah. They did possibly introduce sweet potatoes. Okay, so interesting. That's, that's quite nice. fatty, and corn and cassava. Maybe there's again some dispute that maybe these were here earlier, but let's let's give the saladoids credit for something they made. A terrible done. name. They definitely brought pots in which to cook things, okay, so good. that's good. Yeah. yeah, and so this group again moved through Trinidad and Tobago on on route to the various Antilles and got, even goes as far as Puerto Rico. I don't think I mentioned it that in the Benwari Trace they found a skeleton buried in a crouched position, who's the oldest human remains in the in the Caribbean. All right. So that's from 3,400 BC and had a few uh, grave goods. So definitely intentional, you know, kind of belief in the afterlife implied mm, okay. burial. Interesting. And then uh, in 1919, John A. Bulbrook, who was a, a British-born <laughs> oil geologist, he got a grant to excavate a, a saladoid site, this ceramic age people, at Palo Seco. And he found 11 human remains buried in a fetal position. So this was a different burial custom that's a pattern you see when cultures change um, and there's even comments later that you know people kind of going oh and now we bury our dead uh, laying out flat on their backs you know now that the Christians have told us we should do that right okay. so it's kind of indicative oh, of a geez. cultural change in how you see burial or God hates a croucher apparently the Christian <laughs> God hates a croucher more middens so basically they seem to put all their trash they lived on hills and just rolled their trash down the hills convenient we really haven't changed that much as a species. <laughs> sure. If we could, we would bring all our trash to the edge of town and roll it down yep. the hill. Uh, <laughs> or have someone else do do it for us. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's globalization for you. Uh, yeah. I outsource the trash rolling to, to, to Chinese mainlanders. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Right, the people of the Barrancoid culture oh, then Jesus. settled in the Orinoco Delta. These are such ta- terrible names. They are. Uh, about 350 BC, and they reached Trinidad about 500 CE. So again, a cultural shift from the Orinoco Delta up to the island. There was modification of pottery styles. Some of this made its way to Tobago, showing that it was trade or, or some conquest. And their pottery took on these kind of animal and human shapes, which suggests kind of ceremonial and religious right. yeah. uses for the pottery and shamanic traditions that still exist in some mainland tribes. So that's kind of cool. Getting closer to understanding what's happening uh, then for 650 to 800 AD a big cultural change happens there seems to have been some kind of climactic change where there was less rain and more hurricanes for quite a while right. and a lot of the communication between all the West Indian islands that was going on under the Saladoid sphere of influence kind of collapsed and um, you basically end up with Trinidad more aligned with the mainland mm-hmm. and Tobago kind of in a cultural continuum with the Windward Isles of of the, the Lesser Antilles. So Barbados and the like? Barbados and, and that kind of, that part of the world, which is interesting, so we got a, we got a split there. 
Uh, and pottery loses a lot of its ceremonial meaning, just becomes practical. So that's, again, a shift. And finally, just very soon before before Europeans turn up, there is the, this thing called the, the Mayoid tradition begins. Wow, saladoids oh, and mayoids. <laughs> okay. They have the thinnest, fi- um, best-made pottery of, of all of the pottery you've heard of so far. Great, good for them. Uh, and seem to be like... You know, the Arawak and Caro speaking people when who are late Stone Age technology people when the Europeans arrive are probably related to this tradition. There were apparently five nations in place when the Europeans started writing about them. So Walter Raleigh, who I mentioned earlier, Clam Lover in fifteen ninety talked about the Karina Pagoto, the Arawaka, the Shebayo, the Yao, and the Nepoya. And some of those names we'll hear again, some of those tribes survived were, were they all represented in trinidad or is it just the kind of general cultural you know they were kind of the the groupings he could identify oh, okay. so there's still napoyo and arawak are words here yeah. for sure the napoyo spoke an arawak language related to mainland arawak languages and the the yao people spoke a, a carib language related more to the island the other islands in the caribbean and tobago was a mostly carib speaking kalina people who again were allied with the um, Windward Islands. And there's a so an interesting comment in Dr. Bomert's book, which I suppose isn't that unusual in the world, but it kind of says how you see culture may be different to your genetics. Mm. You know, if if a group conquers you, you may take on their culture without actually becoming them being replaced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the Carib languages had male and female registers, so men and women spoke the language differently. Okay. And while island Caribs saw themselves as related to mainland Caribs, they had lost their language and now spoke Arawak languages. Okay. Uh, and it's possible that the language of the, the subjugated Arawak people uh-huh. who had been conquered by male warriors from the mainland survived through their children. But the culture kind of harkened back to the mainland, which is kind of... That was something some 17th century island Carib kind of explained to a white guy who was willing to write it down. It's, so, it's kind of the uh, the Braveheart uh, format. You'll take our blank, but you'll never take our other blank. Uh, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll take our culture, <laughs> but you'll never take our language as long as we were able to kind of pass it on to our children in some way. Exactly. Yeah. And so there were between fifty and 200,000 people living there on this highly populated island, as it was described, when Europeans made first contact. Mm, it's not going to be highly populated for long. Hola. Yeah. And they did things like hunting using fire, to clear the savannah, like we saw in Tasmania, that yeah. kind of thing. And also the headmen built loyalty through competitive gift-giving, or competitive altruism, which is not unfamiliar to what we encountered in Alaska, the kind of potlatch yeah. thing. So that, that was kind of the way of the moving dynamics of power kind of were to do with who could give the most gifts. Not that different to, you know, Anglo-Saxon culture in Beowulf either. You know, who can give me the most rings? I'll be loyal to him. And the native name for Trinidad was... Ke'eri, or Iere, which is often translated as the land of hummingbirds, which is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and that imagery appears in the crests and so on. But um, Walter Raleigh, again, described said it just meant island, and there seems to be some linguistic evidence to support <laughs> that. Thanks, Walter. Looking at mainland languages. And He'd eaten stuff. a few bad clams, and he was kind of phoning it in that day. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the state of play when, um, when three ships uh, made their way to the mm. Caribbean. From very far away. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk about um, the arrival of Europeans, the inevitable arrival of Europeans, 
we're gonna mess everything up uh, right after this this quick break. Right, Mark, so who were the first Europeans to come to this area? Kind, kind of famous, kind of famous guy. Oh, yeah, have um, you heard of him? Creasy C, Christopher Columbus. Um, as, as we all know, he, he discovered the Americas, uh, discovered in 1492, uh, probably after, as we know, St. Brendan, mm-hmm. uh, who mentioned in the Faroe Islands. Uh, episode and, and, a couple of, and a couple of hundred thousand people who were... Already living on Trinidad at this point. Oh yeah, uh, and and Eric the Red also discovered the Americas. Everyone discovered the Americas, as as we know. That that's one of these true things about history. Everybody discovered the. But Americas. Columbus especially. He also discovered the Americas, as was popular at the time uh, in in history generally. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, in my little own fact corner, I also have uh, Ike Eisenhower and uh, uh, Oren B. Artiste Usher also discovered mm. the Americans. I, I discovered them once in about 2013 on a holiday. Very nice, very nice. So Christopher Columbus didn't didn't just discover the Americas once. He discovered them over and over again, uh, each time with more uh, horrible results. We had him in, in Cuba, didn't we, in our Cuba episode? Like his first voyage was actually quite conciliatory. He kind of made friends with the natives, figured out what he could learn from them, what crops they had, much more so than in his later voyages. So, uh, yeah, I think I think Christopher Columbus too, the search for Curly's gold, was the one where things really got mm. quite bad. Um, so he went over to the Caribbean that time and uh, enslaved a bunch of the locals. He also got involved in local wars. He, he I don't know if this is the right word, exported. He sent, let's say, the enslaved locals back to Spain. Mm. And he really angered the queen, apparently, by making a mess of everything and, and kind of getting involved in local wars and enslaving people. Uh, but also because he had promised so much from his first expedition in terms of, you know, spices and gold and all the cool stuff he's going to find. And he really just kind of sent, sent, sent back people and they were pretty unhappy about that. That's fair. And, and then after that, I mean, the Spanish were now kind of aware, oh, wow, there's this big opportunity. But it seems like one after another, they send out these other expeditions and pretty much every ship they sent out was shipwrecked by endless hurricanes because, you know, I guess it's the Gulf of Mexico, so mm. a lot of hurricanes. Right. And Europeans probably wouldn't have been used to dealing with such things. So I guess that, that tracks. So there wasn't really anybody to to replace uh, Columbus who wouldn't immediately get sunk by a hurricane. So with, with much reluctance, Isabella and Ferdinand signed him up for Columbus three. Hispania Hootenanny in 1498. So uh, Columbus decided to to wander south of where he had already explored into what were at that point Portuguese waters to see if maybe he could stumble upon a big lump of reputation saving land and, and gold. By July 31st of 1498, Columbus and his crew were running out of fresh water and had not seen land for 27 days. Hmm. They then spotted three mountains all at one time and in one glance. And Columbus named the island Trinidad because of the three mountains he saw. Uh, so Trinity. That's sweet. Um, yeah, very, very, very nice move. And certainly in keeping with the kind of, you know, Bible-thumping Catholicism of, of the day. Mm, but usually it was the day it was discovered on. So that's kind of a bit more thoughtful. Than true usual. enough. True enough. It wasn't just, it was St. James's Day, we'll call it. James's Island. Uh, 
Begin massacring on the count of three. Uh, so, um, for nearly two weeks, Columbus explored the area around Trinidad with difficulty as he was becoming gradually blind oh. at this point and his feet uh, were apparently afflicted with gout. Oh so he, he wasn't in the best of health around this time. No. He named the bay separating Trinidad from Venezuela as Golfo de la Balena, so Gulf of the Whale, which is known today as the Gulf of Perea. And, and he thought he was surrounded by four islands but actually he was in the Orinoco Delta mm. and he did notice the dangerous riptides caused by the river uh, but he, he didn't really understand why it was so dangerous and he called the Delta the mouth of the dragon ooh nice so after Columbus visitors to Trinidad were infrequent but I must say highly disastrous oh good in 1513 two Spanish Dominican missionaries came uh, and they made friends with the locals that's where that section ends because that is the context of what happened next. I feel like that might not be. What was that show? They just made friends and that was all fine. They made friends and that was all fine. Cool. Okay. So until, move on to the next section. <laughs> oh no. Until another Spanish ship arrived. Mm. Uh, and because of the friendship with the missionaries, the locals trusted this group. But they shouldn't have because they were invited on board the ship. Uh, up came the anchor and they were taken to the Dominican Republic where they were sold into slavery. Oh. Yep. So is that, is that why it's called the Dominican Republic? Because it was colonized by Dominicans. I, I never oh, thought wow. about that. Yeah, probably. That, prob- that probably isn't. We should look that. We'll, we'll, we'll probably do that sometime. But <laughs> that, Yeah, that would make sense. Um, that, and then you have the Franciscan Republic and the um, the Capuchin Republic. Maybe not. We're probably completely wrong. That's, uh, did the Capuchins just, did they just take over those monkeys? They just drink cappuccinos. Yeah, oh, and, right. and the, yeah it's full of mon- mon- monkeys and coffee. That's, right. Yeah. Highly, highly jittery monkeys. <laughs> In 1516, Juan Bono... Uh, great name from Spain. He good came name. to Trinidad with seventy men. Good John. Yeah, good, good John. Uh, not sure. He he came with seventy men, invited a large group of tribal people to a feast of friendship, then surrounded the hut, abducted as many as he could to sell as slaves, and tried to burn the rest in the hut. Hmm. So great. Um, putting putting this to one side and putting you know, Columbus to one side, the first person to really make an impact on Trinidad uh, was Don Antonio Cedeno. He arrived in 1530, uh, which is 32 years after Columbus had, had kind of done a lap of the place and moved on. And he was essentially the first official temp by the Spaniards to settle Trinidad. Okay. Uh, with him named officially as the governor. He arrived with a whole pile of stuff. Uh, caravels, uh, men, food, arms, horses, domestic animals, trinkets for barter with the tribal people, etc. The locals, God help them, welcomed Sedeno. This is after the, the various kind of unpleasant enslaving and massacre kind of things that happened in the past. But for whatever reason, he was not keen to integrate. He built fortifications uh, and kept himself and his men behind these fortifications until they ran out of food. Uh, and then he began his community outreach program, raiding the stores of the local people. They retaliated, obviously, and pushed Sedeno back towards the coast. Resounding success. Sedeno hmm. uh, continued back to uh, Puerto Rico, I think. Um, but word had spread of the mess he'd made, and people weren't keen to join him on a sequel invasion expedition. Fair. Eventually, uh, he, he did manage to recruit some men, a mix, a healthy mix of the greedy and stupid. And around this time, there was a a competitor conquistador, Diego de Ordas. He also landed in Trinity 
which kind of led to a split in the Spanish efforts there because you got the kind of official one under Sedeño and you have the much better, arguably more scary one under Ordas. So Sedeño, on his second trip to Trinidad, was welcomed by uh, the local village of Amerindians who were kind of there where he landed until they turned on him and killed about 80% of his men. Uh, Sedeño then went on a rampage and himself tried to kill everyone in the village uh, and came back again third time around with a larger force to settle Trinidad. Uh, This time around, his men got uh, quite ill and again the Amerindians attacked in force, killing many of his men. He technically prevailed in the battle, but the the damage done to his group was so much that uh, he he was basically done. Uh, His men drifted away to follow other more successful conquistadors, uh, like Pizarro in Peru. Oh, right. And Cedeno then went to Ordas, uh, where where he was encamped, and was imprisoned by Ordas for six months for being such a bad conquistador. Wow. Uh, Because Cedeno was basically just kind of turning up, getting into massacres. And, and just making things more difficult for the Spanish rather than actually settling Trinidad, which is what he was right. meant to do. Uh, Cedeno died in 1538 on the South American mainland, poisoned by a slave girl, it says tantalizingly. I couldn't find any more details on that. That sounds, sounds a fitting end. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, thus died Trinidad's first designated governor. So hmm. it's it's not been great so far. In 1553 and 1569, there were further half-hearted attempts to settle, and the next significant event was in 1592 by Antonio de Berrio. He had been searching for... Do you want to take a swing? Um, El Dorado. El Dorado, always El Dorado. It doesn't always exist, you stupid historical dummies. <laughs> so he was wandering around looking for El Dorado. Uh, he took official possession of Trinidad and founded... San Jose de Aronia, which is now St. Joseph, uh, which served as the capital until 1784. His other main claim to fame is that he was there when Sir Walter Raleigh, famed privateer, came to Trinidad. Raleigh and his brother, Sir John Gilbert, uh, rounded up a bunch of investors, soldiers, ships and supplies. And on February... Should I ask why his brother is a different name to him? I have no idea. (laughs) My notes say Raleigh and his brother, Sir John Gilbert. Uh, Raleigh and and other people uh, rounded up... British aristocracy. I'm not going to mention the Sir John Gilbert guy again. Screw you, John Gilbert. So from uh, February 6th, 1595, (laughs) they set out from England with five small ships. His expedition was an act of open hostility to Spain. He was a state-sanctioned pirate, essentially. Uh, They reached the island of Trinidad, where they cautiously checked out the Spanish forces... The Englishman attacked and immediately captured the town of San Jose and took Antonio de Brio as prisoner. Brio told Raleigh what he knew about El Dorado uh, and tried to discourage the Englishman from continuing on his quest. But his warnings were in vain. Raleigh left his ships anchored at Trinidad and took only about 100 men to the mainland to begin a search. Spoiler alert, it doesn't exist, you idiots. So he found squat all except for a bunch of rocks, apparently. And he, no. he brought back these rocks to Queen Elizabeth. And he was like, check out these rocks, love. And she was like, you're an idiot. Um, and it would take him another 20 years before he'd be allowed back to continue his search. So yeah, Raleigh didn't really find El Dorado or anything like that. And his son died on the expedition, apparently. Uh, and as his men went berserk and broke international peace treaties left and right, this is on the second expedition 20 years later, mm-hmm. Raleigh eventually was executed on his return uh, with oh. the comments uh, on the nearby axe, this is sharp medicine, but it is a physician for all diseases and miseries. Oh, he's so clever. Wow. Um, 
That's uh, it's a bit grim. It is a bit grim. Uh, also, according to biographers, uh, Raleigh's last words as he lay ready for the axe to fall were, Strike, man, strike! Um, <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, do or die. Anyway, so uh, basically people were turning up and having a terrible, terrible time. And if they stayed long enough, they'd make life very, very unpleasant for the locals as well. That's essentially the pattern here. The next 100 years were very quiet. Uh, and according to no less a source than Wikipedia, there was mm. there was so little going on that the Spanish traded freely with the British, uh, breaking their own rules. <laughs> Basically, no one was watching. No one cared. So why not? Uh, Trinidad, ain't nothing going on here, mm. baby. The Dutch apparently attacked in 1637. No one seemed to care. Uh, in 1671, there were only about 80 Spaniards. Um, and and then as many Amerindians who were regarded as, and I quote, domesticated. Ugh, mm. gross. We mentioned the Capuchin monks, uh, lovers of coffee and tiny monkeys. Um, <laughs> they, they were empowered in the late 1600s to convert the locals. This did not work out amazingly. Which is why it's not called the Capuchin Republic today, yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> So, uh, so, you know, this kind of forcing, foisting of your religion onto people uh, obviously created some resentments here and there. And in 1699, a dispute broke out between some priests and Amerindian workers who were rebuilding the Roman Catholic Church at the mission. The priests were unhappy with the slow progress of the work and they threatened to complain to the governor, who was on his way to visit at the time. And for context, if they had complained to the governor... These workers are a pile of poop. Uh, essentially, you know, the governor probably would have started whipping them all and killing them and stuff uh, as as other nice. governors had done. So just to say, it wasn't just a simple complaint. Arguably, it was a threat of, you know, murder and terrible stuff. Yeah. Just to contextualize what happens next. 1st of December, 1699, uh, the, the local workers decided to act. They, uh, step one of the plan, kill all of the priests with clubs. Mm. They apparently then threw the bodies into the foundations of the church. I think they tried to oh try, tried to cover them up, but it's also fairly symbolic. Here, he, here's your progress on the job at hand. Uh, also, arguably, they were martyrs, and you know, it's good to have some martyrs included <laughs> in the architecture. I, I, do. I mean, maybe they're being considerate to the beliefs of the. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a bit of a stretch, I'd say. The Jaggers. Uh, okay. So um, then, when the governor eventually arrived. They ambushed his party and they killed they killed everyone except for a soldier who escaped and rode back to the capital. And then Spanish forces let fly, killing hundreds and hundreds of Amerindians in reprisal. Um, so it was a massacre and then it was a super massacre. So the, the, the people in that area were pursued by the Spaniards who they, they, they fled and they were pursued by the Spaniards who overtook them at a place called Comcal. Uh, and they landed at Galera Port. Many dove into the sea in preference of, of being captured, which, you know, arguably fair enough. 84 rebels were captured and 61 of them were shot. 22 of these Amerindians were brought back to San Jose to be tried. The verdict came on the 14th of January, 1700 at San Jose de Oroño, which is the capital of the colony. Uh, and here is a quote that these 22 above indicated criminals be hung until they necessarily die 
and after their deaths, their hands and heads shall be cut off and exposed and nailed in the places where they committed their crimes, and their bodies shall be cut in pieces and put along the road for their punishment. Right. So we're going to hang you, and then we're going to slice you up and nail nail little lumps of you pretty much everywhere that anybody can see. Kind of like William Wallace sort of situation. Kind of thing. Again, mm. as was the style at the time. So from here on, there's just a few general references to how Missions were being founded, but were largely unsuccessful. Um, I've read that there's only about four missions that actually transitioned into longer-term settlements, so were, were in any way successful. But that, that was the Spanish model at the time, right? As you 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 want to air quotes civilize the natives. That's it. You know, you set, you set uh, up and a so mission. you you send some priests rather than soldiers, and then you hope a generation later that they are speaking Spanish and yeah. being Catholic and uh, will just want to trade with you. So, you know, they exactly as you say, they, they deployed their standard approach, but it wasn't very successful. And also you can kind of recognise that like there wasn't really a lot of economic advantage mm. to Trinidad, so they weren't yeah. they weren't trying all that hard. They did send, you know, several missions, uh, but uh, as I say, only four could be regarded as a success. And that's kind of the sorry story of no movement in the 1700s until we start to drift towards the final decades of that century. Uh, at, at which point I think uh, I'm going to pass things over. Okay. In 1777, Spanish had done very little to develop the the population of the island at all. Uh, It had gone from, uh, as you mentioned, Joe, like a a pretty highly populated island before the Spanish arrived to seemingly in the the census of of, of that year had only uh, about two and a half thousand people living on the island and uh, about 2000 of those were Arawaks. So, yeah, I mean... That's great. Yeah, so they have a, a very paltry population. Um, you can see the numbers. Yeah, not a lot going on on Trinidad at this time. And into the picture steps this guy called uh, Philippe Rose Rum de Saint Laurent. He had been born in the French colony of Grenada before it was taken over by the British in 1763. Uh, visited Trinidad and befriended a Spanish officer who had been tasked with exploring and mapping the island. And he, he decides to accompany him on his trek around the island and this guy i get the sense from reading about him was was pretty smart and recognized as many of the spanish apparently did not that this this island had a lot of potential as a settlement for you know farmers and plantation owners and this sort of thing and he uh he wrote to the spanish authorities to convince them to try to open up trinidad to uh you know immigrants and outsiders and and people from other colonies around the region which were prospering much more than trinidad was Mm. uh the king of spain Thus, uh, later decreed uh, upon his advice that foreigners would be allowed to come and settle in in this colony, in a Spanish colony, uh, hoping to attract new planters, farmers, settlers, just trying to trying to gin up the economy a little bit, as they had failed to do up to this point. Yeah, most of the new arrivals were French and moved to Trinidad from other colonies around the region. Although there wasn't a whole lot to encourage them to move at that point, it was it was you know there was a lot of land to be had, but not much else. And we'll see, actually, as we go forward, that uh, a sort of a very liberal immigration policy has benefited Trinidad greatly in in 
you know the couple hundred years since this point well it depends if you're if you're an, an indigenous american well that's not. true too but uh how you feel about that yeah but as we mentioned in the intro it is it is today one of the most ethnically diverse countries in this in this region laurent uh proposed a number of measures that would help to attract a lot more settlers you know including sort of tax breaks and and grants of land and spanish authorities eventually invited him to madrid to present his ideas but he was not particularly well received by a guy called Count Galvez, who was the the minister in charge of the Indies for the Spanish crown at this time. Galvez apparently refused to hear him out, uh, but took his ideas, nice. basically took credit for them by his, you know, took took credit for them, uh, turned around and, and said, this is what we should do. And also <laughs> refused to reimburse him for traveling all the way to Spain <laughs> from Trinidad, leaving him stranded in Spain. His plans were eventually implemented in 1783. These plans included offering new settlers zero taxes for the first 10 years that they lived there. Uh, land grants, as I mentioned, and the Spanish crown apparently would offer 32 acres of land to each Roman Catholic who decided to settle in Trinidad, and about half as much for each slave that they brought. And about half of that total amount was offered to what were called free-colored settlers at that time. So those were those would have been mixed-race settlers, I guess, the, the descendants of freed slaves and and people from different different colonies around the region who w- were not slaves, but uh, were were certainly not you know worthy in the eyes of the Spanish. Equal, yeah. The French population on the island after this point begins to uh, expand rapidly as both white and black settlers move to the island. Uh, Laurent himself moved to Paris in 1786. He was asked to move to Tobago to uh, incru- improve that uh, that colony's economy. Um, and that's the last kind of I, I heard of him. I'll, 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 I'll get to that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll pick that up later, Joe. But that's that's kind of the last I have on him. Neither the settlers nor the Spanish took responsibility for the defenses of the island. However, they were just interested in this ta- at this time, as I understand it, about uh, the economy and, uh, like I said, a- attracting new people to the island and, and uh, improving the economic prospects of Trinidad. As the population and the economy began to grow, it became a pretty ripe target for other nations, uh, particularly those who had colonies in the same region. Uh, The modern-day capital of Port of Spain, uh, which is still the capital today, was established when the first sugar mill was was built there in 1787. And that town soon became a very busy trading hub for cotton, sugar, cloth, and slaves. Slaves moving all around the, the, the Caribbean at this point in time. Uh, just just on that, the, uh, the, the order in 1783, which kind of opened up Trinidad officially to all this lovely immigration, there, there was one of the clauses in it uh, actually referred to citizenship. Yeah. And it had it that all settlers were essentially getting the right to citizenship after five years of residence, including the right to hold public office if qualified which made no distinction between black and white people in these rights. And I think that's kind of important because as, as you see, you know, there, there is, you know, on a practical level, there is lots and lots of people being brought in from, from Africa, either through the slave trade or, or through, you know, free colors or whatever the term that was used was, mm. but that they would be allowed more than in other places via this to kind of actually properly integrate if they weren't actually enslaved. And then when we kind of see slavery moving to indentured servitude as slavery becomes becomes illegal yeah. uh, internationally, it provided for a, a greater ability for the, the cultural uh, diversity to be reflected in kind of the officialdom of, of the island, probably before some of the other kind of uh, West Indies. Sure. So Tr- Trinidad was actually quite late to be affected mm. by slavery of of African people, the uh, 
the the indigenous population were uh, hunted by slavers quite mercilessly and so on in in earlier centuries mm. but that's kind of surprising so like while you know Haiti and Saint-Domingue and Grenada were all slave economies this is only really starting now yep. 1780s it, it's not it's not anything to do with anything other than the fact that the economy was underdeveloped I think if the economy had been developed you would have seen loads of slaves as oh, well sure. it's just that yeah. Trinidad was for whatever yeah. reason just I mean I guess it. Bec- there was nothing done with I it I guess because it was, it was so close to Venezuela that well why don't you just go and go to Venezuela or you know it's 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 not quite the other islands either, so it's not one thing or the other. I, I and the, the indigenous population right, right, right. C- caused trouble, you know? Yeah. Um, by, by 1797, the population of Trinidad had grown to more than 17,000, having uh, expanded by about six and a half times over just the previous 20 years. Wow. French whites at this point were the most powerful group on the island and they controlled most of the major settlements mm-hmm. yeah as a as a population breakdown there are around 2,000 uh, white plantation owners or uh, people who worked in the plantations here and four and a half thousand free coloreds as they were called and over 10,000 African slaves yeah and planters had established uh, farms growing uh, sugar cocoa and coffee on the island right around that same time just as uh as things were starting to kick off in trinidad we hear a, a familiar cry in the distance what do you guys think it is say hello the, the british are coming yeah. the british indeed are coming uh so yeah during the napoleonic wars spain had oh, at one time been an ally of the british but after being defeated by the french in 1795 decided to ally with them in the following year and so in 1796 and around this point british forces begin raiding around the caribbean scooping up different French island colonies that they, they have their eyes on. And uh, Tobago will be important here, Joe. I think you can talk about that later. Mm. But at this point, the British decided to turn their eyes to the Spanish Spanish colonies in this area. And Trinidad was pretty much top of their list. On the 17th of February, 1797, a flotilla of around a dozen British ships arrived in the bay, quickly surrounding the few Spanish ships that were stationed there at the time. Like I said, they, they hadn't really thought very much about the defense of the island, as far as I'm aware. Uh, And rather than engaging the British, the Spanish troops essentially set their ships on fire and quickly thereafter uh, just surrendered. I think they they, they knew that they were pretty much outgunned from the from the word go. Like when they saw the fact that they were vastly outnumbered by the amount of British ships that arrived, uh, they just decided to give it up immediately. You think when your city is called Port of Spain, you make a bit more of an effort. Exactly. It's a a little bit embarrassing. I suppose it's Port of England now. Yeah, (laughs) true. In this invasion, there were no casualties and no effort was made to defend the island and it was formally surrendered uh, the day after. So the British were, were, I imagine, pretty happy with how that went. A guy called Sir Thomas Picton was appointed uh, governor by the British and the island was deemed a new British crown colony. And he's British, is he? Yes, he is indeed. (laughs) Thomas Picton. Uh, Picton was uh, apparently not given or he felt not given enough men to hold the island and opted for a rather brutal regime. Oh, dear God. Uh, basically deciding that uh, a heavy hand was the best best way to kind of compensate for his lack of men. Very out of character for, for British mm, colonialism. Yeah. Now, 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 boys, there's only 10 of us, so we'll, you'll have to kill extra hard. Yeah. <laughs> you need you need everyone to think yep. you're insane. <laughs> So, yeah, many British planters at this point, obviously, after Brit- Britain takes control, decide to move to the new crown colony. And in the years after the British occupation, the island's economy continues to grow and prosper. The British also brought in new slave to increase the number of workers on the island. Uh, although, strangely, they decided to stick with the Spanish system of laws, which had been established. 
And I believe from what I read, this was to ensure that the existing Spanish and French settlers, which a lot of which apparently remained there even after the British took over, they were pretty happy with the way that mm. things were being run. And, you know, they didn't, the British basically didn't want to antagonize them too much. Uh, so, you uh, know. Listen, if you can extract the profit without having to yeah. open a new constitution, yeah. I mean, why, why would you bother? For sure. Uh, and it's around this time that uh, sugar becomes uh, starts to become a real mm-hmm. key crop in, uh, in Trinidad. Mm. Uh, so I have a quick table here, a little table in the notes, uh, as a demonstration of exactly how the slave economy impacted sugar farming as, as the British brought in uh, more and more slaves. So uh, in the year 1799, they were producing about 8.4 million pounds of sugar. Right. And about 30 years later, they were, they were producing 37.7 million pounds Dear Jesus. of sugar. Uh, of sugar so increasing mm. production uh, increasing production by about four and a half times in just over 30 years it's serious stuff that sounds sustainable yeah there were also tensions between the british and the uh, free colored people who i mentioned earlier some of whom were former slaves the british did not treat them any better than the spanish did or at least from what i read i think they actually treated them worse they were imposed mm. curfews right. and special laws upon uh, the free colored people they weren't allowed to inherit land there's basically an entire different system of laws for for you if you're if you're brown you know separate but definitely not equal yes so a guy at this point comes into the picture called uh, dr jean baptiste philippe uh, he was a young intelligent and british educated mixed race settler uh, who was born on trinidad in 1796 mm. Uh, it went off to, to, to study, I believe, in Scotland and returned to the island in 1815 after qualifying as a medical doctor and was appalled by the conditions that the free colored settlers were enduring and decided to overturn the unjust laws that had been um, put in place to keep them down. Oh, that won't be popular. He traveled back to England to fight his case in the courts and in 1823 presented uh, his arguments directly to the colonial office uh, and signed his petition not with his name, but with the words a free mulatto, which was uh, at this point a derogatory term for a person of mixed race. Right. Yeah, no, it was one, one of the many words the Americas have for, for varying degrees mm. of mixed race because they, they always felt it important to know, sure. uh, you know, how not white yeah. you were. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, surprisingly, his case actually was eventually won and he's seen as a, a some, somewhat of a heroic figure in the history of Trinidad because of this. Um, although he apparently himself did not uh, live long enough to see his reforms implemented. He died a couple of years after making his case. Um, hmm. But, yeah, it was one of the first landmark civil rights cases in all of the Americas. Sort of starting that cool. that ball rolling, which will, you know, will continue in the in the decades to come after this point. In 1833, slavery was abolished in Britain and her colonies, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe there was a there was a kind of an, uh, a period after which you know all slaves would become free. I think it was was it seven years or something like that. I think they they had to be apprentices yes. for a while, which meant working yes. for free oh, okay. uh, and not being able yeah. to leave. So it it right. was similar to slavery. Yeah. Yeah, so full emancipation was fully uh, and finally legally granted uh, on Trinidad ahead of schedule on the 1st of August, 1838. At this point, we we begin to see, as we've seen in a lot of other places, notably Suriname, plantation owners needing to fill the gap that is left by uh, the freed slaves. And in 1844, the British government sought to import 2,500 Indian workers uh, from Calcutta and Madras into uh, Trinidad to try to supplement uh, the the loss that they'd, they'd suffered in terms of the, the slaves that were emancipated. Wages for these people were set at $2.40 per month for males and $1.45 per month for females. 
And over the next 60 to 70 years, roughly around 145,000 Indian immigrants uh, would arrive in Trinidad, most of them uh, working on cocoa plantations. So again, we have yeah East Indians and West Indians. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of these confusing places where really using yeah. the word Indian for the native population of uh, of the Americas becomes exceptionally unhelpful. It doesn't help the at West all. The West Indies, the Ameri Indians, and then actual people from India. Yes. From the Indus Valley of yes. India. India, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, those one hundred and fifty thousand um, uh, Indian people who were who were brought over, um, they were brought into uh, indentured servitude, mm-hmm. uh, which, while quite slavey in many ways, does does have an end date on it, and that uh, and and pay right and and, and some pay exactly, but uh, the, the greatest number of those um, one hundred fifty thousand stayed after their period of indentured uh, servitude yes. was over, uh, mm. which is why it had such a huge impact on Trinidad. And in the, the, the population of Trinidad is, is about half and half, out of 40% Indian descendant and 40% African descendant or something? No, yeah, they're, they're, they're the biggest minority right now, I believe. So really, all these people brought in to work either involuntarily or semi-voluntarily yeah. are... The ancestors of most Trinidadians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They might come on like a, a five, six, seven year contract, and then they would be, uh, you know, their their yeah. passage from India to Trinidad would be paid, and then uh, at the end of that contract, they would be offered the choice to either go back or, if you sign up to like another six or seven year contract, we can give you a, a, a like attractive land at the end of that, and you can just stay here. And I mean, you know, that was uh, that was, I, I believe, what incentivized a lot of them to to stay was that you know the promise of of being able to keep land on the island and and actually settle there. Although being cynical, I know we saw this in Suriname. Right, uh, right. There was certainly plenty of people who yeah. maybe giving you the choice about going home or staying for another seven years wasn't yeah. so much a choice. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I know I was supposed to pay your ticket back to Calcutta, back to um, yeah. Calcutta, but, but uh, yeah, 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 I'm not going yeah. to. So if you stay, I'll keep paying you. Yeah, yeah, but, you know. And uh, there's also a mixture of Hindu and Muslim in this population, which I don't know. I don't know if that was much of a feature in Suriname, but there seemed to be a a significant minority of Muslims. Definitely, there's a few influential families in the 20th century who were of, of that descent. Anyway, uh, so uh, Joe, I think we were, we're going to jump back, which is something that we rarely do in this in this podcast. But we're going to jump back and talk about uh, Tobago now. At this point, mm. we'll take a quick break here, and then we're going to talk about the separate and somewhat distinct history of Tobago. Joe, Tobago? Separate, distinct, messy, um, convoluted. Such a little island. How could it be so, and yet? So, fun thing first, that Tobago's name derives from the cattle bird uh, tobacco. Well, maybe. I'm going to preface this with a maybe. Did I read that it's because it's shaped kind of like a cigar? Yeah, uh, or a pipe or something. So the really? pi- the pipe that that Amerindians used to smoke tobacco leaves is called oh. a tobacco, and it's a little bit unclear how people are suggesting this name got attached to the island, but there seems to be some link between Tobago and yeah. tobacco. 
I hadn't realized um, it was the shape that, that dictated that. Well, but yeah, but I thought that was weird because they wouldn't have been able to see it from above, presumably. So well, you draw a chart. They have a rough idea of what it looks like, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, tobacco. Don't try it, kids. Um, <laughs> too delicious. It's too yeah. delicious. Goes well in a salad. Yeah. It's too cool. You're not ready to be that cool, kids. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Tobago didn't really get the same attention as as its neighbor, uh, probably because it's little and um, so on. But in 1511, it was specifically mentioned in a Spanish document allowing the enslavement of indigenous people in the Americas. So it defined the the natives as uh, as caribes or cannibales, which are sort of interchangeable words. Cannibals? I think the word cannibal comes from one of Columbus's words for... Right. So he kind of thought the Taino in Cuba were kind of friendly, and then the Caribs were fierce and human-eating. <laughs> Too friendly. Okay. And those were all the people that existed. Caribals. And they were all the same, Caribals. obviously. Uh, right. Yes, yeah, so they were designated as, as part of the scary kind of native people, right. uh, and therefore perfectly perfectly fine to in you know capture and keep in slavery for forever so Stab that was a bit rough yeah. and so they there were kind of routine slaving raids to tobago by the spanish in the area that obviously took an impact on people's health and well-being and uh, population in 1580 apparently some british seamen visited and reported it was uninhabited what? and uh okay I don't know about that. I think they may have just not met anyone. Mm. And in 1598, Raleigh's lieutenant, Lawrence Camus, also reported something similar. We landed on a beach and we looked around and couldn't see anyone. So uh, it's definitely unhappy. James I of England claimed the island for Britain at this stage. Didn't do much to it. But I've seen elsewhere writing about the, the Kalina people living there through to the 16th century. Trading back and forth at the Guyanas and the West, the Windward Isles. All right. So I don't really know. Those are two disputing points of view. Uh, there weren't that many people anyway. Between 1650 and 1814, uh, Tobago changed hands more frequently than any other Caribbean territory. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you guys would like to hazard a guess at sort of ballpark how many times. Yeah, I'm going to guess at something like 20, around 20 times. Okay. It's a lot. I think the factoid I saw related to a slightly mm-hmm. different but overlapping time period. 33. Wow. The number 33 is what I read. And that wow. is exactly wow. right. Yeah. 33. Okay. Like, do you want to just do you want to give them a, give us a list of like all of them? No. <laughs> no, there's not that many countries involved. Oh, it's just, they just um, Britain, France, Spain, I assume, just like knocking it out. Uh, oh, no, you're forgetting the most important colonial power in the Caribbean, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Denmark. So I want you guys at home to rack your brains, think of the, the most imposing nations of Europe, and um, you won't be disappointed. Okay. So in 1628, 300 Dutch settlers arrived, founding the colony of New Valcheren. They were led by Jan de Moor who was the Burgermeister of Fliesingen, or Flushing. The Burgermeister? <laughs> like the mayor. Okay. Interesting. Town, town guy. Yeah, town master. Right. Okay. He inventively named his fort uh, New Fliesingen, which is near the modern town of Plymouth, and further Dutch and French settlers followed. However, the indigenous Kalina population, who apparently weren't all gone, uh, were hostile. Oh, wow. People and do exist here. There were also attacks from Granada and St. Vincent that troubled the town and it was abandoned in 1630 so it was a good two year stint of uh, right. having a town 
They resettled three years later with another 200 new Europeans. And then six years later, the colony is wiped out by the Spanish attacking from Trinidad. Right. So the Dutch aren't having a great run of it. Over the following decade, the English from Barbados made four distinct efforts to set up colonies in Tobago. Wow. All of which were repelled by the Carib population. Good on them. Again, notably, not all dead. Right. And then the titan of European colonialism, the, the, the giant of world affairs... Uh, the behemoth of conquest. Uh, Slovakia? Like, who is it? The Duchy of Courland. Which is, which is where? What? You know, Courland. <laughs> Not a thing. I think it's like bits of southern Latvia or something. It's oh, like right. in and around the Baltics. It doesn't exist anymore. Right. And it was a vassal of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Right. It kind of seemed to be ruled by random German speaking people cool. from the Baltic area. We have actually met them once before in their one other colony. Really? Where? Where was that? Ah, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. So in, in 1637, 200 Cor- Cor- Cornish people, Cor- Cor- Coronian. Corlandian. Coronian Corlanders. Coronas. Um, they. They attempted to set up a colony. Um, this and another subsequent attempt were strangled by Spain, kind of harrying them and blockading them. Courland only had 200,000 people, but it developed one of the largest merchant fleets in wow. Europe under Duke Jacob Kettler, who was quite, he was a go-getter. Uh, and he just wanted access to the new world, you know. He saw the Netherlands and England and Spain all kind of bringing back all their sugar and tobacco. And he was like, I want What's that. I want that for my, my freezing yeah. cold... Uh, vassal state of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. So in 1642, two ships under Captain Karun, with about 300 settlers, attempted to settle on the north coast near what is now called Courland Bay. Oh, so they they, they did they did have a, a lasting impact then. It's called Courland Bay today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And their third attempt survived blockading for a while, but attacks by the Carib people encouraged by the Jesuits on St. Vincent, who apparently riled up the indigenous folk right. against Protestants, I think. Wow. Because the Corlanders were Protestants. All right. They were evacuated to, to Tortuga, apparently with the help of Trinidadian Arawak people, helped them escape because they didn't like the Caribs. I don't really, I don't get. It yeah, sounds yeah. too messy. And then Corland and the other Protestant powers kind of shifted their interests. They were like, we can't do everything. So they focused on their other colony, Fort Jacob in the Gambia River. Ah, all right. Cool. Okay. You vaguely remember me getting excited about these guys before and how ridiculously strange it is. That does sound somewhat familiar, yeah. So, 1654, the Courland allied itself with Protestant England when its alliance with the Dutch was compromised. I think that was the whole Suriname war thing. Yep, where Suriname okay. ended up being traded. One of the wars that ended with that happening yep. was going on. So, the Dutch and English stopped being friends despite. You know, hating Catholics. Yeah. England was like, yeah, go on, have have another go. And they set up the colony of New Courland in Tobago under Captain Willem Mullins, who had 45 cannon, 25 officers, 124 Coronian soldiers, and 80 families of colonists who were Dutch and Coronian in origin. And they set up another fort. Do you want to know what that fort was called? Fort Coronia. Exactly the same as the one in the Gambia, Fort Jacob. Oh, great. Right. That was set up in the southwest of the island, along with a Lutheran church. They seem like very, very inventive people. They just, they just name Priorities. things after the same. After their one duke, yeah, uh, yeah. New Courland's name of Tobago now. Okay. The Dutch didn't like that, so four years later they set up a second colony, 
on the other side of the island, which grew to actually be about 10 times the size, so a couple of thousand people. Uh, it was led by brothers Cornelius and Adrian Lampsons and was called Lampsonland, I think, or Lampsonstadt. Right. They were wealthy colonisers of other islands and they had hundreds of ships between them. And some French Protestant refugees kind of bolstered their numbers. They set up a, their own little settlement at Three Rivers. But attacks by the Kurdish forces early on accept, uh, forced them to accept Kurdish sovereignty of the island. They were allowed to stay. Goods exported to Europe from Tobago included sugar, tobacco, uh, sorry, mispronounced that, tobacco, <laughs> uh, coffee, <laughs> cotton, ginger, indigo, which is good for making your blue jeans, rum, cocoa, tortoiseshells, tropical birds and their feathers, because of course everyone was hat mad in Europe at this point. Oh yeah. Well, not everyone, rich people, you know. But, you know, everyone who was anyone. Despite the Kurdish colony thriving, war in Europe left Duke Jacob in Swedish captivity. Right. Which is a bit awkward. We need a new Jacob. New Jacob's Jacob. <laughs> the Dutch colony took advantage to capture Jakobstadt, the, the city or the town. <laughs> Jacob land. Yeah. yeah, great. And destroyed the Kurdish merchant fleet in 1659. And at this time, there were about 7,000 African people and 1,500 Europeans on the island. So Jeez. slavery had gotten gotten going. There was 120 plantations, but seven sugar mills and two rum distilleries. So all, all, all the vitals. Delish. Sounds wonderful. Uh, in 1662, the Lampsons collaborated with Louis XIV of France for some reason and became the Barons of Tobago. So go them. Promotion. Cool. Uh, there was a treaty that would return it to Corland until some Spanish buccaneers attacked in 1666 and the Corps ran away. Then the Dutch resettled the fort under Abraham Kreinsen, who Sounds featured is the guy who conquered Suriname. Ah, yeah. Okay. So he's bopping around the neighbourhoods, conquering places. We're not very far from Suriname here. Like, we're, we're, we're pretty close, no. you know. No. So. That's just to the east. Just a bit a up little. the coast. Yeah. And in 68, the Coronians tried to come back. The Dutch drove them away. And then the Dutch colony was attacked by Jamaican buccaneers because the English and the Dutch were having that war. Mm. Then the English from Barbados actually properly occupied it. And then the French from Granada. And then the Dutch again, all within about a year. Right. Then the Dutch again. <laughs> you're, you're getting you're getting a wish, wish, Luke. We're getting the full yeah. list of every every salty dog to eat a clam on Tobagan soil. I think this this section should have just been a list of a list of countries, and then the end. <laughs> Britain begat France, begat Spain, begat the Corlanders. Okay. Yeah, this is interesting. Methuselah. The Kalina indigenous folk helped out the Dutch in defending themselves from being attacked by the Napoyo from Trinidad. And then everywhere was abandoned and looted. Okay. So where are we? We're like 18, 1870s. French, English, Dutch, Kurdish. <laughs> yeah, it all kind of peters out then. So the English, oh, I think, claim God. it, but don't really do anything. Good. Uh, don't do anything. One of Just the Lampson's sons briefly takes it again, and then an English guy kills him and blew up the fort. And... Uh, they just bounced around for like a decade and then the last kind of any Europeans was in 1690 when a Danish vessel, I don't know, saw a white guy. So basically it was just left to its indigenous inhabitants for a bit. Okay. Who had effectively made colonization impossible. Win-win. Along with their yeah. neighbours from yeah. the Windward Islands. The Treaty of Isla Chapelle back in Europe designated Tobago as neutral. So that was signed in Aachen in Germany, famous for its Charlemagne. You must try the Charlemagne. And it's beautiful. And yeah, the Amerindians from Venezuela who sought to avoid settlement in Capuchin mission villages 
and island Caribs from St. Vincent who sought to escape conflict with black Caribs, who I assume are mixed race uh, people, they all kind of moved here. So people who didn't like all the being colonized and killed just kind of moved to neutral Tobago for a while. Then in 1763, uh, that all comes to a close when the end of the French and Indian Wars gave Britain control of Tobago and a plantation economy was swiftly implemented. Okay. The main ridge was left forested, though, to protect rainfall. So there was a bit of ecology going on, which was unusual for the time. Some wise person kind of recognised that the rainfall relied on the environment and in order to keep the land fertile, you'd have to protect it and actually got a statute passed in 1776 in Westminster protecting the forest, which makes it one of the oldest protected environmental areas in the world. Wow. All right. Which is kind of surprising. Take note, Easter Island. Yeah. Yeah. The indigenous population dwindled from hundreds in the 1770s to almost none by 1814, with many emigrating to Trinidad, but mostly just dying out from diseases and hard work. But the population overall kind of grew between planters and their enslaved people who came with them. They were given a constitution, and then in 1781, France captured Tobago during the kind of American Revolutionary War kerfuffle the spillover from that. And Mark, did you have something? Yeah, I, I encountered like a log, um, which from from the kind of um, uh, prelude to it might might have actually been an account from the commander himself. But they, they were also at, at pains to mention that a lot of people didn't like this commander, and they thought he was a bit of a bit of a liar so there was actually a second account which was meant to be kind of a more neutral critical version i actually only read the version that uh where he was aggrandizing his own uh, his own successes so that might color something of what, what i'm about to say but it, it is also a bit more first person so uh, on the 29th at daybreak we discovered tobago on one side and on the other side seven english vessels and five frigates he doesn't really go into the battle that much uh except that he was successful and therefore is is a genius <laughs> He, he does mention, just in terms of the conditions that the, the British were defending, it had surrendered the previous evening to Monsieur de Bouilly, uh, no relation, who had landed with 800 men three days before. The apparition of our fleet, the slight relief they could expect, and the reputation of the commander on shore had induced them to lay down their arms. Essentially, my men were so cool, they couldn't wait to surrender to them. Some of the locals had fled with cattle and so on, but there's also this kind of uh, unpleasant line, like, uh, more, more than one actually, uh, the crews of the Pluto and the Experiment, the two of the ships... Wouldn't want to be on that ship. The Experiment, yeah. Uh, uh, commanded by Monsieur de Martelli, pillaged a little, which seems a bit of a weird way to talk Just about pillaging. It's rather binary. It's like arson. Yeah. You can't do it. You can't do a little bit of arson. Yeah. You've done some arson. Uh, and then lastly is his just description of Tobago. Tobago is 20 leagues in circumference. It has only uh, 18,000, and this is a quote, Negroes. Uh, the air is very unhealthy. The soil very dry, covered with swarms of ants that blight the sugarcane so that they raise only cotton. That was his view of Tobago. Not a very positive one, hmm. it seems. All right. Well, in 1814, the British got it back after the Napoleonic Wars, but falling sugar prices really hurt the economies of the whole West Indies, including Tobago. Emancipation of slaves in 1838, as you mentioned earlier, Luke, also came with its own economic problems if you were a plantation owner, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, and the government struggled to have any revenue at all. They were running deficits for a long time. Uh, in 1876, the Belmana riots... I heard about that. Yeah. ...were led by some liberated Barbadians who had come to work on the Roxburgh estate. And this seems to be kind of... I'm not sure if this is the only event of this kind, but there, this is kind of 
demonstrative of the tensions that existed in, in Tobagan society. But basically, though, there was a a bit of a riot. Uh, people set, set fire to the to the sugarcane. Uh, when when Corporal Belmana and six armed policemen tried to arrest those responsible, the community wouldn't have it. Belmana fired into the crowd, killing Mary Jane Thomas, who was uh, another Barbadian. And yeah, there was chaos. Basically, where the whole community rose up and got a, a, a quote here from an account. like They stoned the courthouse, battered down its windows, and perhaps tried to set fire to it while the police party was still inside. The magistrate, having read the riot act, agreed to release the four arrested men in an effort to pacify the mob, but this failed to disperse them, and the courthouse remained under siege for several hours. Eventually, the magistrate felt he had no choice but to sacrifice Balmana in order to save the lives of the others in the building. Balmana himself agreed to leave the courthouse for Scarborough under escort as a prisoner on potential murder charge. But outside, the mob fell on him and brutally beat him, the women allegedly being the most prominent, and left him for dead. He died on the 5th of May of his injuries. Uh, and eventually they, they needed a British warship to come in to quell the riots. Wow. So um, th- there was tension, people were looking for more wages, and there were ideas people had about rising up and taking the property from the whites, which aren't entirely unreasonable. But in 1884... Basically, the colony was going bankrupt. A London-based financier who provided credit to a lot of uh, a lot of the planters went bankrupt in London, and everyone was basically up a proverbial creek without a canoe. Right. In eighteen eighty-eight, union with Trinidad inevitably happened. Maybe not something Trinidad wanted, and it had to forgive all of its debts from Tobago. And uh, from that point on, they were a single country. Nice. And you'll note that the East Indian indentured servitude step never happened here. Okay. So right. the population in Tobago is much more, it's majority African descended and very little Indo-Caribbean. So it's a, it, does, it does have a different character to it and it uh, has a different history. But from, from this point on, they are together. Okay, let's uh, let's take another quick break, and uh, we'll be back with the unified colonies right after this. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about a couple of different things here. Uh, first one is the discovery of oil, which we mentioned in the intro. Uh, the history of oil dates, dates back to 1595, when Sir Walter Raleigh, who we've talked about in, of El Dorado fame before, apparently landed in Trinidad and caulked his ships. Caulking is like filling in the gaps between the, the boards that make up your, your ship, basically trying to make it watertight. Oh, like grouting your ship. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he did this at a place called the La Brea Pitch Lake, oh. which is one of the things I, I spoke about in the intro. This thing is is pretty amazing. I don't know. I don't know if we've ever come across anything like it before. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's it's entirely unique, but it's certainly something that I'd never come across before. It's like a tar pit. Isn't it's it? essentially a gigantic tar pit. Yeah, it's just a weird observation. But there's a pr- place called the La Brea Tar Pits outside yes. of L.A. It gets referred to a lot. It gets referred to in Futurama yeah. and stuff like that. Like it's it's a really well known. Oil. Is it related to this La Brea I do tar not pit? know. I, I, I did recognize the name, but yeah, I think it's just, I think La Brea is just the, yeah. the name of the town that's nearby. So you can go there today right. and like visit, there's like a visitor center and all this sort of stuff. It's also uh, one of the few places there's any 
organic matter preserved from the ancient yeah. times. So like any kind of canoes or or, oh, right. or food stuff. Sorry, I think even a few human remains have been found yeah. there. But obviously that's all decomposed yes. in the archaeological record elsewhere. Yeah. So what few rottable things have survived are, are coated yeah. in pitch. From the pitch so lake. yeah, the the pitch lake is located in southwest of Trinidad, and we'll stick a couple of images of it in the show notes, uh, probably on our Instagram as well, maybe when this episode comes out. But it is the largest natural deposit of asphalt in the entire world, uh, estimated to contain ten million tons of asphalt, right, and covers about a hundred acres, Good God. and is reported to be about two hundred and fifty feet deep, and it has a four and a half out of five stars on TripAdvisor. <laughs> You have to try the Charlemagne. A section of, of a review from a, a guy called DJ Trini Vibes from New York uh, on TripAdvisor. <laughs> he says, a nice uh, a nice drive into the deep south of Trinidad is uh, the amazing pitch lake in the town of La Brea. There are official tour guides working for, on the site or there are cheaper local uh, tour guides outside of the lake. My advice is to get an official tour guide. I say so because this beautiful lake can be very dangerous if you're misled. There is pitch yes. you can easily be sunk into and disappear for good. Ah. The beautiful bird seen while walking around is truly beautiful. Three out of five stars. Three out of five is this individual. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a very Why glowing three-star review. It's either one star or five star. Like Those you, are the only stars that exist. Yeah. You must rate everything yeah. he's got going on there. <laughs> yep. If I think if you come across it as a, as some kind of prospector or, or settler, you're gonna you know it's gonna be pretty right. obvious there's oil somewhere around here. If there's hundred acres of, of asphalt lying around on the on the surface of the of the island, but it's not a whale. Sure. In 1857, the first well was drilled for oil in Trinidad around the Pitch Lake, and oil was struck at 280 feet. Usually, this would have been uh, set up some kind of frenzy, but the fields were not particularly developed at this time, and you know, drilling technology was very primitive at that time. They were like, okay, there's oil here, but you know, it's not it's not particularly yeah. easy to get it costs to. Too much. Not, you know. We're not particularly keen to to put a lot of a lot of work into into extracting it. Um, I mean, who needs oil anyway? Sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it was all all coal mm-hmm. at this time. So, subsequent years, uh, better technology gave way to a more scientific approach as uh, geologists began to be employed to figure out what's the best way of extracting the oil from uh, Trinidad. And techniques such as percussion drilling were first developed. And in the early 1900s, uh, around 1910, Churchill, Winston Churchill, who was then the first Lord of the Admiralty, hmm. uh, announced that the Royal Navy would convert its ships from being fueled by coal into being fueled by oil. Hmm. And that basically uh, created an oil boom. In 1908, the first full year of, of commercial oil production is completed on Trinidad and Tobago. Shortly after Churchill's announcement, a company called the Trinidad Oil Fields Limited, uh, back when company names were, were super simple... <laughs> And to the point, that company was established and within two years was extracting 10,000 barrels per day. Hmm. And in the same year as Churchill made his announcement, more than 30 companies were granted loans to develop the oil industry in that year. In 1913, some of these properties were taken over by United British Oil Fields, Trinidad Limited, or UBOT, which was a majority-owned subsidiary of the Shell Oil Company, hmm. and BP and Texaco would soon move into Trinidad too. We'll we'll jump back a little bit now to talk about other stuff. Basically, oil is like a huge, has, has a huge influence over the development of the island. I think it's its largest part of its economy today. And at the time where Churchill made his announcement, as I mentioned, this was before, as I understand it, that oil was discovered in the Middle East. Like these were, I believe, the biggest oil fields oh, right. uh, in the world. Certainly in the in in this part of the world during World War One, this was essentially the served as like the the petrol station for the the Royal Navy. 
it's certainly crucial to to the war effort. Even today, it's forty percent of GDP and eighty percent of exports. Hmm. So it's, yep. it's a lot. So yeah, we we talked before about Indian migration, which continued through the end of the nineteenth century. And by 1870, there had been so many new arrivals on Trinidad that the Indian minority made up a quarter of the total population. Settlers arrived from other islands and colonies in the region, and the diversity in Trinidad increased massively. The money to be made and the general openness to immigrants created a, a proper melting pot in this in this area. Uh, people arrived from all over, including Africa, Madeira, China, Syria, Lebanon, Venezuela, and the UK. But as we touched on earlier, migrant workers from particularly from India uh, were treated a little better than the slaves that they replaced. And this would contribute to ongoing uh, unrest among the working classes in the years to come. By the late 1800s, both Trinidad and Tobago were suffering due to a collapse in sugar exports, Mm -hmm. uh, which had become at that point their, their staple crop. Officials began to fear around this time that unrest would result in riots and began to crack down on large-scale gatherings or, or kind of groups of people who might foment any kind of uprising against the government. This would have an impact on what was a precursor to the modern-day carnival celebration, which is Kanbule, which I think is a, a festival that was celebrated around the, the Caribbean at this time. Okay. In 1881, the Kanbule riots saw lethal clashes with police after large groups surrounded a police station and attacked police in uh, the port of Spain resulting in one death. Hmm. Uh, same kind of unrest was repeated a couple of years later in what came to be known as the Jose Massacre. And Jose, I think, is a Indo-Caribbean sort of adaption of a Shia holy day. All right. Okay. Indian immigrants, basically around 6,000 of them, I believe, gathered and were, were, were celebrating this holy day and attempted to enter the port of Spain as part of that procession. British troops, again, fearing uh, any kind of large-scale gatherings or uprisings, they read them the Riot Act. And when they failed to disperse, they fired it into the crowd. Mm. Uh, the death toll figures vary depending on who you ask, but are estimated between 9 and 20. And as you mentioned earlier, Joe, Tobago was amalgamated with uh, Trinidad in 1888. And they're going through very similar processes of, of, of labor unrest, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. Trinidad's status as a crown colony meant that it didn't have any elected assembly at all. Oh, so the people didn't elect any officials to the government whatsoever. A governor was essentially appointed by the British government and then would handpick his own cabinet. Sounds good. You know, it was it was no representation whatsoever. This was uh, in contrast to a few other British colonies in the West Indies, and soon became a further source of agitation for local people. Marvelous. By 1914, the population of Trinidad and Tobago was some 350,000, with 60,000 living in the capital in the port of Spain. As I mentioned, Trinidad's oil reserves at this time were crucial for the Admiralty. Mm And the Port of Spain was also home to the most powerful wireless station in the West Indies, which was, you know, obviously very important for ships making their way through the Caribbean. As a result, uh, defenses were strengthened around the island and soldiers also volunteered to fight in the conflict from Trinidad and Tobago. About 458 men, from what I read, signed up to enlist in the British, uh, Canadian or French forces. And in total, almost half a million pounds was given in aid from Trinidad and Tobago. Wow. And that's from a country with an annual revenue of just just under a million pounds in 1914. So they gave so half their GDP, essentially. Basically to... gave half their GDP, as, as I understand it, towards the war effort. Yeah. yeah. Good Lord. Unlike Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago never introduced conscri- conscription. Although, according to official figures, it was the second highest recruiting British Caribbean country behind Jamaica. So people huh. were were truly wow. eager to, to, to get involved even even if they weren't being conscripted. 
Due to the fact that German submarines operated as, like in and around the Caribbean, the U.S. feared a long-planned German invasion of the Danish Virgin Islands, which I made a mental note. We have to go and cover that the, at some the point. Danish Virgin Islands? Yes, uh-huh. yes. Okay. Uh, the what are, what, I did look into this a little bit. What are now the U.S. Virgin Islands were once the Danish Virgin Islands. So, Oh, we'll so, to, so did right. the U.S. invaded them. Very good. Yes, they did. That'll show the Germans. They signed a treaty with Denmark yeah. and purchased the islands sure. for $25 million uh, at around this yeah. time. And in the same vein, and I wasn't able to find a lot on this, although I found it quite interesting. In the same vein, Washington also tried to buy other Caribbean territories such as Jamaica and Trinidad oh. from uh, Britain and France, but wow. were rebuffed. I wasn't able to find very much detail on that, but apparently they, they, they basically wanted to protect their territorial waters mm. and so they were like eh, it might be a good idea for us to, to you know to have a couple more islands in this area but i mean so. they were playing around in cuba around this you know so why not yeah yeah why not keep going yeah i assume puerto rico as well i i actually don't totally understand the american i think you know, i think they won that in the the war against the spanish well, was that spanish-american war oh wow. yeah it, wow. it, it, and yet it is still I not think a state. so yeah um, under pressure from political activists in 1925, the British government allowed a constitutional reform to allow locals to elect seven representatives. And I, I read conflicting reports on this, seven representatives out of 13 or out of 25. I'm not sure. I saw different reports on that, but basically, you know, a, a small amount of representatives yeah. uh, within the larger government. Even then, there was not universal suffrage. No, obviously. Many people found themselves unable to vote. Voting rights were determined on the basis of income, property, and residence qualifications, and was limited to men over the age of 21 and women over the age of 30. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's still very much not a democratic ideal at this point, but it's 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 moving in that direction. Yeah, labor movements were not satisfied by these changes and continued to push the government for more representation. And uh, crop failures, coupled with the Great Depression, led to further labor disturbances across the Caribbean territories in the 1930s. In Trinidad, the most notable of these were the 1937 labor riots, and these were led by a a man with a fantastic name, Tubal Uriah Butler. That's multicultural. Yeah. He apparently led a hunger march from the oil fields to the port of Spain and was later sought for arrests uh, when the riots became violent. And the British authorities were not able to locate him, but passed on a message to him through contacts that he would be granted safe passage if he agreed to testify into an inquiry into the events surrounding the riots. And what do you imagine happened to him? Was he executed? Uh, He was not executed, but he came out of hiding to uh, cooperate and they arrested him. (laughs) Um... They saw him as a as a radical, a political radical, and a you know a, a troublemaker. Um, and although he was uh, eventually released from prison in May 1939, he was rearrested six months later once the Second World War broke out and was held for the duration of World War II. Oh, wow. He is seen as like a, a sort of a hero of the labor movement. He's certainly like a, like revered today mm. in terms of his his actions that um, you know helped the conditions of workers. Uh, he's seen as one of the the modern leaders of the you know uh, trade union movement. Right. And would it would go on to become an influential politician in the 1950s. And today there is a statue of him in the town of Faisabad in southern Trinidad. Well, could, could okay. this be a point to mention Calypso? Sure. Sure. My understanding of Calypso, which seems to have developed as a music style in Trinidad, is that it was kind of political yeah. music. So the, the, when I started reading about Calypso, I haven't read a lot about it. But like, I mean, I have encountered... Like when I was reading some part of history, we'd say, and they wrote a calypso yeah. about it. Uh, but but it also reminds me a lot of that. Um, I'm going to get the name wrong because I actually I actually have no memory what the name is. But uh, those um, 
kind of Mexican ballads about like drug lords and drug runners and stuff. Those mm. kinds of mm. uh, songs that are really more about kind of preserving a tale, but also putting a slant in it. That kind of stuff, very very bardish yeah. stuff, and not a million miles away from like a court balladeer in medieval Europe, even who could criticize exactly. power. App- apparently, the history is that it comes from like Igbo culture in Africa originally, at least partially. And you remember the griot, the griot tradition we encountered in Gambia, the kind of oh yeah, singing poets who would yeah. tell stories, yeah, yeah. and that sort of developed into kaiso, which is a a word used in the Caribbean for some of that kind of poetry and okay. calypso is kind of a permutation of kaiso like cariso calypso i don't know i don't quite follow how the one turns into the other and then soca music today is like the soul of calypso is apparently where that name comes from and it's sort of okay. more infused with different rhythms and more modernized but it seems to all trace back to this idea of being able to speak truth to power through a calypso through a music yeah, there was, there was a guy who, who wrote Calypso's under the name Attila the Hun. He was a Calypsonian. Oh, yeah, I saw him. And he yeah. actually went on to be elected to Port of Spain Council and spent right. time, he, he, he protested mm. about censorship by writing a Calypso called The Records Are Banned and it was banned. It, <laughs> it's probably not too far off the kind of more modern example of comedians getting elected. Yeah, it, it, probably very like that. Like, like Pepe Grillo in Italy and the Ukrainian... President mm-hmm. and, and various others. Uh, so I just think that's an interesting feature. And I think it was important during the mid 20th century in particular. Like it developed all the way from the 1800s and started being recorded by Calypso bands who would go to America in the 1910s and 20s. I do actually have a Calypso later on that we might cool. take a little, little taste oh, around nice. as a clip. Great. But they're just, uh, and, and they kind of transitioned into English around this time and were, were important to the politics, presumably also of the labor movement. So I just thought. Yeah. That's a good point to mention it. Okay, uh, World War Two. So in November 1940, Churchill agreed to allow the United States to establish and operate military bases in several British Caribbean territories, including Trinidad. In October of that year, U.S. officials visit Trinidad to investigate facilities to be leased to the U.S. for naval and air bases and army establishments. In early 1942, a major air presence is established on Trinidad and begins to take shape. And before long, the American presence on Trinidad had grown to up to 150,000 soldiers. Dear Jesus. A huge influx of people. Uh, I have a clip here from a guy called Gaylord Kelshall, who is a a military veteran and Trinidadian historian. Hmm. And he talks about how the American troops at Trinidad changed the societal fabric of the islands. So we'll drop that in here. If you look at the population of Trinidad at that time, it was 450,000 people. Take 130,000 Americans and add them to that, and you get an indication of what Trinidad was like. I mean, that's one in three. A minimum of one in three, right? One person in every three was an American. And that gives you an idea why the Trinidadian is so much like the American, much more like the American than the rest of the Caribbean, right? It comes from that contact, that contact that changed Trinidad for good uh, because you know with that volume of people of men all looking for relaxation uh, recreation it's the start of the entertainment industry which today dominates Trinidad 
Trinidad was also an important hub for ships crossing the Atlantic throughout the war, as we mentioned before, because of its uh, its oil. And I think it's the largest natural harbor in uh, the West Indies, as I understand it. Oh, right. The oil refinery on Trinidad was then the largest in the British Empire and, and fueled much of the war effort around the world. More than 250 ships were sunk around the island during the course of the war. Wow. And by 1950, most of the military bases were disbanded on Trinidad. 1946 saw the first election since universal suffrage was introduced, uh, I believe, during the war. And at this point, Trinidad had seen a massive growth in the middle classes due to oil exports and uh, continuing liberal immigration policy. Four years later, our friend Butler won a plurality, but did not become chief minister due to fears over his radical policies. There were then elections in 1950, and then in 1956, a young political upstart named Eric Williams, which I believe you'll probably be talking about, Mark, a little bit later. He came to prominence under his PNM party, the People's National Movement, while Butler's party fell away, winning just two seats in that election. Hmm. Williams was an Oxford-educated historian and had traveled hmm. through Europe and even Germany uh, pre-war and returned to Trinidad for good in 1948. He will be an instrumental figure in bringing independence to the islands, and his party would dominate politics uh, there until the 1980s. In 1958, the wave of anti-colonialism that had followed World War II resulted in the formation of the West Indies Federation. And this was a short-lived political organization of British-controlled territories in the Caribbean, including Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, and Jamaica. And the group aimed to form a political union that would eventually become independent from Britain similarly to the Australian Commonwealth. So they, they all wanted to kind of band together and, you know, kind of force the British government to give them independence. Interesting. Uh, and its capital was the Port of Spain in Trinidad. However, less than six months after its formation, the union collapsed due to internal disagreements, leaving each one to find their own path to independence. And the territories that would have become part of the federation eventually became the nine contemporary sovereign states of, does anybody want to guess, any of these real quick? St. Kitts and Nevis. That's one, yep. Um, Barbados? Yes. St. Lucia? Was that French? Yes, correct. St. Vincent and the Grenadines? Right. Yes. Nice. Right. All these geography quizzes I do pay off. And Jamaica? Jamaica is Jamaica. correct, yep. Uh, are the Bahamas? No, they're not. They're not no. West Indian, are they? Uh, Dominica, I don't think anybody mentioned uh, yet, no. and Antigua and Barbuda. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and the last thing that I have here in this section real quick is flag talk. Ooh. Okay. Um, flag talk. Prior to independence from the UK, in 1962, Trinidad and Tobago used a British blue ensign, which we've seen everywhere. Uh, one of those ugly British colonial flags. Yeah, basically it's the blue flag with the British uh, Union Jack Three in the here. top left defaced with a badge depicting a ship arriving in front of a mountain for some reason i don't think the islands are particularly mountainous but but it's like a ship with loads of detail and there's loads of like people wandering around and there's like a, a whole sentence in latin written on the tiny flag of a it's flag. it's terrible yeah so the flag actually it's really great i'm really like this flag uh this might be my favorite one since Suriname. actually the flag of trinidad and tobago is uh, a red field with a white edged black diagonal mm-hmm. band from the upper hoist side to the lower uh, lower fly side so that's basically just a a red flag with a, a black band ac- across it diagonally and white uh, stripes sort of on the outside of the black band it's it's a uh, solid flag. flag it's good it's clear it's it's yeah. uh, distinctive yeah it's good yeah it's it's not got a load of writing it, on it. it doesn't look like other flags <laughs> it yeah. doesn't say it trinidad was, and tobago <laughs> no 
Uh, it was chosen by the Independence Committee of 1962. Uh, red, black, and white symbolize fire, uh, or the sun representing courage, earth for black representing dedication, and water apparently representing purity and equality. Yeah, all right. Whatever. And was designed by a guy called Carlisle Chang, who is a prominent prominent uh, local artist of Chinese descent. However, he also in, uh, he always insisted that his roots were in Trinidad's cultural mix, according to an interview that I read uh, with CaribbeanBeat.com. <laughs> declaring himself, quote-unquote, fed up with this Chinese thing <laughs> and stating that his art grew out of a love for the society that had produced him. All right. That's so, progressive. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. Have you seen the coat of arms of Trinidad and Tobago? I, I don't think so. It, it's quite cool. It takes the same kind of color scheme, uh, but makes the, okay. the dag, it's kind of got a white chevron uh, with a black top and a red bottom. And there's two golden hummingbirds at the top. Cool. And then the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria nice. at the bo- uh, on the red with their little red crosses uh, and white sails. Cool. So it's actually pretty cool. It's a lot of stuff. Together we All aspire, right. together we achieve. So that's a, sol- that's a solid coat of arms, but kind of very much mimicking the flag in a, in a nice way. Yep. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, maybe we'll stick a Calypso in here, uh, some Calypso music, and then we'll talk about pretty much up to modern day. Yep. So back right after this. In March 1970, men from over in in Then I Okay, Mark. Yep. Off you go. As 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 you mentioned, Luke, there there was an attempt to make a, a Caribbean super team, which kind of fell apart. And I, I had a quick read there, and part of the reason it fell apart was that there was a bit of an imbalance between some of the larger partners and some of the smaller partners, because as you know, a lot of those countries are really hmm. really small. Uh, and then you've got Jamaica, which is actually quite yeah. large. And um, Jamaica yeah. was was kind of maybe into the idea, but only if they could dominate the whole thing. And uh, when the proposed capital of this new country was going to be Port of Spain in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, they weren't too happy about that. And Trinidad and Tobago similarly were kind of at the, you know, the higher end of that scale. I think they were the second largest grouping after Jamaica to be potentially included. And probably one of the richest too. And one of the richest as well. So I I think that was also a concern of Jamaica is that like, we're just going to be financing these tiny islands uh, and we don't really fancy that, to be honest. And I think Trinidad and Tobago were kind of in the same boat. So once the whole project kind of fell apart, partially because of Jamaica and also a bit of Trinidad and Tobago's reticence to be involved, they went down the route of independence. And you mentioned uh, Eric Eric Williams there. He, He was the first um first prime minister i believe and he would yep. kind of go on to be a, a pretty static force in trinidadian Tobagan politics for for the coming coming years trinbagonian i think is is, oh, is the okay. adjective now. okay uh, okay I, I put tnt through a lot of my mm. uh, uh through uh, or tt uh Anyway, uh, it's just through my notes for, for, for abbreviation's sake. Yeah. So uh, the government had to pass an Industrial Stabilization Act in 1965. And the reason I mention that is just because the economy was kind of 
a bit harem scarum around this period. There was a lot of uh, worker unrest and things were just kind of gradually getting worse. I don't know if this came from kind of independence and uh, reduction of colonialization. You know, 60s were not exactly a boom time for many countries, though. I'd imagine the end of the war also was not... Uh, Th that's it. You know, was not great in terms of like, you know, having eaten up all the oil. And uh, I'd imagine the price of oil, I don't, I don't know, but I'd imagine the price of oil probably dropped precipitously after the end of the end of the war i i would imagine i i think i think stuff like that kind of happened to a lot of economies in in the 60s it wasn't you know a, yeah. a, a unique time of global prosperity per se you know it wasn't the 70s but it, it wasn't for sure it was for sure it wasn't as good as the 50s it wasn't as bad as the 70s but it wasn't a good time for for some countries this led to a let's call it a situation uh, one thing to mention just at the outset part of the west indian thing was that it was going to have a very close connection to canada because they were both kind of former british colony federal type things that have been created uh, and the idea was it would be like a Caribbean Canada and as a result there was quite a lot of cooperation between Canada and the Caribbean in those kind of earlier periods and that explains a little bit why a riot in Montreal almost led to a coup in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, what now? Okay. In 1969, there was a group of West Indian students in a university building in Montreal. Uh, they occupied the building, I think it was a computer lab, as a protest against a lecturer who was seen to be racist and the general vibe that, you know, West Indian students weren't, weren't being treated fairly. If you can imagine that, all these black students in the 60s. So there were arrests around this uh, uh, occupation and quite a lot of recriminations around what had happened, particularly around a fire that had been set that the students so say... What, a fire, yeah. The students say, uh, we actually didn't uh, light that fire. It was always burning since the world's oh. been turning. Oh, jeez, Billy, Billy Joel. <laughs> uh, um, but their point was that they, they hadn't set the fire uh, and it wasn't in our interest to set that fire because it immediately killed off the protest and drove us out of the building. So we suggest somebody else set that fire. So one of the other things was that they damaged a lot of computers by raining down the paper cards that they were run on into the street. They were dumping computer cards into the street. So there's like pictures of like a confetti-like flood of computer cards being dumped out windows. And people in Montreal were a bit kind of unhappy about this whole thing. And, you know, that student protest seems, seems like that would be a good place to draw a line under it. Except for the fact that it was then perceived, and I guess must have been tracked quite closely in the West Indies as sort of an example of, you know, they realised that the, the West Indian people uh, weren't actually being treated fairly. So then there was a, a scheduled visit by the Canadian Governor General to Trinidad, and there was huge protests around this because they, they regarded this as being, you know... Uh, um, not fitting considering how Canada had treated treated their West Indian people. And this protest actually forced the cancellation of this event. And then a year later, there was a rally on the anniversary, which suffered a crackdown from police. And then there was a reinvigorated round two of this rally a few weeks later, where a protester was killed by uh, Trinidadian uh, police. And the whole thing spiraled out of control from there. A state of emergency was declared. The government would respond by cracking down on civil liberties while also trying to acknowledge the merits of the complaints. It was kind of one of these, well, you know, you're angry and we get that, but you shouldn't be burning stuff and killing people and looting the place. So please don't do that. But they, they, they suspended like a lot of civil liberties. The legislation they brought in actually kind of, I think, fractured their own support. And they realized, oh, sugar, we've actually gone too far here. Uh, sh sugar being their their expletive of choice in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, <laughs> ah, sugar. I mean, uh, it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it actually works. Um, there was also an army mutiny as a part of this like 
supposed kind of coup attempt. Uh, but the army mutiny, according to people who were kind of around about it at the time, just kind of happened. It wasn't actually triggered by the fact that, you know, there was looting in the streets and the, the country was kind of sliding into into chaos. It was because they weren't getting paid enough. They were just like, uh, you know what? Actually, we're we're not paid enough. So we're we're having we're having our own thing. According to interviews, it, it was suggested that it, it wasn't triggered by it. It just kind of happened at the same time. Uh, in an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Salandi Brown, he said, "As far as I was concerned, in terms of the special branch reports, which I saw every week, there was no connection between the mutiny that took place and the politicians and the Black Power movement." Um, actually, sorry, it's probably worth mentioning that the given what was happening in North America generally, the the whole thing is called the the Black Power Revolution. Because it was the kind of people aren't being treated correctly, uh, civil liberties, black power, like all of those kind of things together was the context of why the protest was happening in Canada and why, you know, people in the Caribbean were actually looking at it so intensely. You have to kind of think of the context at the time uh, and what was happening, particularly in the United States at this time. But it it became known as the Black Power Revolution. Uh, and, and that's how it's how it's referred to. What we did have were reports of soldiers attending Black Power marches that were taking place throughout Trinidad and Tobago. They were discontented with some of the conditions under which they were working in the army. There was really no scope for officers to progress. And I love this phrase he uses, that was their main grouse. Uh, <laughs> that's, 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 they, they had a big grouse, apparently, uh, and the army mutinied. The whole thing was just, like, it kind of, petered out i think it got quite close to the whole country you know maybe sliding into chaos but between the kind of political institutions eric williams i think in particular who was, was, was pretty important in that and the fact that the army mutiny was curtailed meant that it didn't kind of get to that proper coup point it wasn't a real risk at that point though. oh actually and there's a great calypso called black power by mighty fluke which actually we might just have a quick listen to here because it's, it's it's great <laughs> it's just so good come on brother come on sister it's important be observant remember all the things they have promised you and when they get in power what did they do oh i um, moving on, in 1976, a couple of years later, uh, poor old uh, Queenie Bags, uh, the same same queen who's still there today, uh, she was swapped out in terms of the kind of uh, the, the, the <laughs> political um, constitution of Trinidad and Tobago for a president. So from, from here forward, we have a Trinidadian Tobagan president, but it was a very smooth transition. Um, the Queen's representative or, or governor general, Ellis Clark, he transitioned to be the new first president. Oh. And he was also uh, a leading figure in 1962 during the writing of the Constitution. He was the attorney general at that time. And he was also uh, a former ambassador to the US. So he was like, you know, what you call a safe pair of hands. So in Trinidad and Tobago... Uh, in 1986, uh, it's worthwhile mentioning the Sexual Offences Act. I, I saw that at a whole section on the yes. Wikipedia page. I thought it was a bit a bit mm, well, odd to be a major point in. It, the it's because it, it's 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 quite influential even in their modern day legal system. Uh, it criminalized buggery, right. uh, which hadn't been like, homosexual activity hadn't been criminalized. I think to that point, this formally criminalized oh, homosexuality yeah. in 1986, 
And it's been oh, amended twice since 2000, but it hasn't decriminalized homosexual activity. So, so that's yeah, there. that's that's there. And there, it, I think it's there's other aspects of legislation, Trinidad and Tobago, that's very problematic. Uh, Immigration Act 1969 prohibits homosexuals and those living on the earnings of homosexuals from entering or residing in the country. There's stuff like that in there, which is very unpleasant. All right. So, so someone in government is a bit of an there, obsession. Yeah, it's it's not very progressive from a legislative mm. standpoint. Um, so that happens in 1986. And that brings us to 1990, which is just a straight up coup attempt. Again, though, it's it's a weird one. There, there's a converted Muslim of African descent. He becomes radicalized to, to the point that the top of this paragraph is the 1990 coup attempt. He's he's pretty radicalized. He changes his name from Lennox Philip to Yassin Abu Bakr. Sure. He is a former policeman, became one of Trinidad's first Muslim converts in 1969 when an Egyptian preacher visited the island. But he then spent time in Libya under the tutelage of ADD All-Star Gaddafi. So he, he, he brings all that uh, sweet, sweet hatred with him and forms Jamaat al-Muslimin, uh, a group in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. And what religion would they be? I mean, it's not very clear from the name. <laughs> Indeed. His group, apparently, Jamaat al-Muslimin, were squatting on government land. And although they were not thrown off the land per se, the government tried to prevent them from building buildings on it. They were like, look, we're not going to, you know, turf you out or make a thing of it. But just like squ- squatters don't build their own houses. <laughs> like That's not how squatting works. You, you get to like hang about, but like you can't you can't shape the mm. land. But they were very angry about this. Um, so their reaction, I would say, seems disproportionate in retrospect. Uh, their number two guy picked up a huge cache of, of guns in. Does anybody want to guess where they picked up all these 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 Libya? guns? Where? where Cuba. In? You're closer, uh, closer in terms of continent. It is Miami. They bought, went to the US, bought a bunch of guns. Right. I didn't think he could okay. get guns in the US. Uh, and they shipped them back to Trinidad. So then uh, 42 of their, their group, so it's like, it's a significant number, stormed parliament. Oh, they God. took the prime minister, uh, A.N.R. Robinson, and most of his cabinet hostage in Trinidad's parliamentary building, which is known as the Red House. Huh. 72 more uh, attackers went to the Trinidad and Tobago television offices, forcing them to broadcast Abu Bakr. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We would like to take this opportunity to inform you that at about 6 p.m. this afternoon, the government of Trinidad and Tobago was overthrown. And there's loads of footage of this on YouTube and like special documentary reports. It was on national That's TV. Bonkers. And there's like guys with AK-47s wandering around in the background. And he's there saying, wow. listen, I'm here. I'm the leader. Where's your flipping prime minister now? Kind of thing. And like the prime minister is holed up in the old red house uh, and, and isn't, you know, being allowed to kind of speak to, to, to the public. So he's kind of, he's got the means of communication and he's captured mm-hmm. parliament. So it, those are two of the biggies. So quite soon, I would say, I think within like 24 hours or so, they cut the signal from the television station, which didn't make Abu Bakr all that happy. So he then locked up all the hostages in a room with a metal box that he told them was a bomb he was going to kill them all with. And he also attacked the police headquarters uh, around this time as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a bit of a bit of an onslaught. Back at the Red House, his group told the Prime Minister to order the army to stop firing on the building because the army had surrounded it. He was allowed to kind of go out to speak to them, and he told them to attack with full force. And he was then, as I understand it, shot by 
the the, the terrorists. Uh, they, I think as a like a punishment. I think they shot him in the leg. Uh, I think also an MP died of a heart attack during the whole thing. The hostages were released after six days after an amnesty was was kind of offered slash agreed with Jamaat al Muslimin with the group. As soon as they got them out, the Trinidad and Tobago government were like. Actually, no, that was nonsense. <laughs> You're under arrest. The old, we won't arrest you trick. Yeah. Apparently, they, they were able to make the amnesty stick. They, they argued against it, saying like, no, 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 no. You gave us an amnesty. We're, no, we're, no take backs. We have an amnesty. And it, I think it held up in court because all these guys were were basically not, not arrested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like, it happened. They were left out and that was it. I think they after a while, they realized we have these hostages, but we don't have the country. And we don't know how to go from here to running the country. Yeah. And they were surrounded by the army on all, all sides and so on. So they you know, they, they didn't really have a, a way out. So they're like, okay, we will stop. <laughs> Bye. Um, but there's two things about that is that one, the, the, the prime minister uh, never fully recovered. Like he's always kind of uh, had trouble walking or was in a wheelchair after that. And it, it was mentioned a lot in what I saw of the um, accounts of the journalists. They were all as you'd imagine, enormously emotionally scarred. And some of them would actually never, given they're journalists now, would never speak about what happened. Uh, they were just so uh, racked with, you know, anxiety and panic attacks and, and PTSD and, and the like. Something that was also mentioned around this revolution that um, while while this was happening around the, the Red House and around the kind of TV station, there was a lot of looting because people were like, we think there's a coup. Take everything that's not nailed down. But also <laughs> that people started partying. They were just like, people got drunk and parties that was that was their reaction I mean, to the coup attempt that's a national pastime i guess so that that that's it and but, uh, like the journalists were like it was a bit hard to take oh no it was i think it was the prime minister it was like a bit hard to take that like the people were meant to be rising up in in uh in defense of their parliamentary democracy and they just got drunk instead <laughs> and i don't know what to think about that i don't think anything good about it they were just dancing and getting drunk mm. and stealing tvs so i don't know that was that was uh, that was that was uh, the reaction to it. But uh, I mentioned Jamaat al Muslimin were not like kind of wiped off the off the face of the earth, and Abu Bakr is still still knocking about. And there's a vice vice interview with him quite recently talking about gang crime in uh, in uh, Trinidad. Yeah, I saw that. It looks it looks pretty interesting. J- Jamaat al Muslimin's uh, support is drawn from a very small number of kind of. Um, African descent Muslims but not the kind of as I mentioned earlier the kind of uh, Indian or, or Asian Muslims right, okay. but um, in, in the kind of 2000s it was viewed as a bit of a like an Al-Qaeda liability because mm. these guys are there they have an organisation they're knocking about and there's plenty of money in Trinidad and it's close enough to America and if guns can go one way they can go the other and it was kind of seen as mm-hmm. a big a big open sore to US uh, security policy uh, in, in the 2000s I read a few articles about that and also, just to mention that the group still exists, like pretty much to modern day, and was implicated in a in a murder and like dismemberment of a female CEO of a big company in Trinidad called Avindra Naupal uh, Kuhlman. Wow. And it's hard to say whether like this group were using Jamaat al Muslimin as as almost like a social club that is good on, big on violence and crime that they were kind of just involved with, like a gang more so than anything. But there was a lot of coverage of this court case because again, a lot of them were acquitted. Uh, and they tried a retrial on some of them, and I, I didn't actually see the details of how that panned out. But they 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 were really trying to to uh, and like from from the like witness statements and everything, it, it seems quite clear that these guys were definitely involved with her mm. murder uh, it, as a part of a group and dismembered her and tried to get rid of the corpse. But um, these guys were essentially acquitted on mass uh, in case in case they have 
eagerly uh, eared lawyers or anything. But um, yeah, they're still still there, still stuff happening, and it's still not great. In ninety nine, capital punishment was restored. What? Yeah, okay. uh, I, I didn't. I didn't have any details of that. I just took that from a timeline summary. But yeah, capital punishment restored. Probably in the context of the fact that sure. gang crime became a huge issue yeah. in the mid nineties to actually to that period, mid two thousands. Also, there was a corruption scandal with a former prime minister. He was sentenced to two years in prison, but that was then quashed. And then they tried to get him again on something else. Uh, corruption charges in 2007 related to a construction project. I don't think he was ever imprisoned or actually sentenced. And in 2011, Prime Minister Kamala Persad Bissessar said the security forces had uncovered a plot by criminal elements to assassinate her and several government ministers. Mm. So, like, it's a bit, I don't know. Bit of a hot, coup hot, vulnerable. Yeah, hot, hot, hot. yeah, it's it's got a few little little coups. And, and gang crime was a big thing in the 2000s. There was a huge march uh, called the Death March of about 10,000 people um, highlighting the issues around how gang crime had become rife. and So people marching against? Against it, yeah. Okay, uh, so the community every, making a stand about it. That, that kind of thing. But even today, it's still quite an issue. Although I, I think... And, and sort of the Port of Spain or everywhere? Port, Port of Spain, I think, primarily. Um, okay. But like, I've, I've looked at it in terms of kind of violence tables mm. and things like that. And you know, it doesn't compare in terms of murder rate to... Any of the kind of really dangerous North American or Brazilian or or Venezuelan cities, like it's it's not in the top fifty yeah. or anything like that. But I think for, from their perspective, it's just it's, get, it's gotten worse know, huge, than they would like. It's got yeah. it's been a huge upsurge, yeah. And yeah, just one one of the things just to mention that the fact that it's so close to Venezuela has meant that in recent years the problems oh. of Venezuela are kind of leaking into Trinidad because uh, gangs are controlling more and more of Venezuela. Huh. So well-developed gangs in in Venezuela are having more influence in Trinidad. In particular, this is a 2019 article I found um, uh, a Ven- Venezuelan gang known as Evander, who are becoming more prominent in uh, a borough of southern Trinidad. The gang leader uh, was only identified as El Culon, which translates as the big ass. Mm. Uh, I thought it was important to mention him. But yeah, just as a, as a trend, Venezuelan crime issues are starting to affect Trinidad. Given it? given the state that that country is in right now and how close yeah. Trinidad is to Venezuela, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine it wouldn't have any spillover effect at all. Exactly, exactly. But but on the whole, the country is fairly well off nowadays, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's Yeah, it's kind of in the middle with regards to GDP per capita. It's not super well off. I think there is like quite a lot of poverty, uh, but... You know, there's still there's still money. It's good there. for the region, though. Yeah, is exactly. it one of the wealthier countries in, in in the Caribbean for sure? I believe it is. Yeah, I think because it has it like a developed part of its economy that isn't tourism. Yeah, oil. That that kind of sets it apart in in a lot of ways. And oil is still a big part of the economy. The oil and gas account for about forty percent of GDP and about eighty percent of exports, but only five percent of employment. Right. So, okay. Yep. The curse of being well resourced with mm. something, your economy doesn't tend to develop other parts of yeah, itself because yeah. it's always yeah, like, it doesn't well, diversify at all so much yeah wh- wh- why would you have an it sector you're saudi arabia you know <laughs> it's yeah cool so we're up to now up to now yeah modern day pretty much yeah uh, one, one thing actually on the oil is that it has ranked the third or depending on where you look the third or, se- or second highest country in in the world in terms of co2 emissions per capita wonderful in terms of how much it you know its citizens actually pollute i'm not sure but yeah, it's a yeah. small place that produces a lot of oil Therefore, it ranks highly in terms of CO2 emissions. That seems to be how these numbers are are, are measured. Hmm. I also mentioned before that the, the Indian community has pretty steadily prospered and grown. 
And yep. now makes up about 35% of the population, uh, which is the largest single ethnic group by about 1%. Oh, really? Okay, I thought there was more African-descended people. That's interesting. I think also in, in terms of politics that over time, like it, it had always been the kind of people of, of African descent who had been in the most prominent positions. And that's actually fluctuated in the more recent years as as the kind of the people of Asian descent become more mm. prominent. The, the parties that are more identified with them, I think, are having greater success by and large, often as part of coalitions. But yeah, but I don't think it's as stark as it is in Suriname, where you literally vote for the, you know, Suriname wasn't like a Hindustani yeah. party. And you're like, yeah, All right, exactly. That's, yeah, yeah. that's quite <laughs> on the nose. The, the names don't have the name of the ethnic yeah. group in it, as far as I understand. Uh, which probably comes from the well-developed labour movement being there. My understanding is they're trying to develop the, the tourism sector more. And there are a lot of tourists that visit here from the U.S. In 2014, more than 160,000 visitors came from the U.S. And the next largest uh, contingent was from Canada, which was uh, just over 54,000. Then the U.K., Guyana, Venezuela, Barbados, Grenada, Germany and India. Slightly strangely on on the tourism side, uh, I I don't know why they're necessarily doing this, but uh, I just flew to Vancouver and back. And every time I watched a movie, it would show me a trailer advertisement thing, but just for Tobago. Oh, so apparently they, they've they've devolved out tourism promotion to just Tobago. It does have some autonomy, uh, I, I so I suppose why. that doesn't that makes sense. Yeah. What 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 were the advertising in particular, Mark? Was it just like you know sparkling just pictures? Of, or... Yeah, that's it. You know, okay. standard Caribbean it paradise. Does stuff. look beautiful. To be fair, it's yeah. kind of got right. still got a bit of rainforest going on here and there, and the nice beaches and yeah, like as a tourist destination, it's got a lot going for it. But just to, to say about, about Carnival, like Carna- it's very much, I suppose, people probably are familiar with like the Brazilian Carnival, the like Rio Carnival. And then in Europe, there's obviously the much more uh, subdued, more clothed Carnival experience. Um, <laughs> goes back to the Middle sure. Ages. It's um, cold in Europe, Joe. It is colder. But it's very yeah. much around like it's it's Ash Wednesday. It's the days before Ash Wednesday in the Catholic tradition, I think. So about, only about 20% of, of Trimbaganian are Catholic now. Uh, there's a lot more Protestants, but I, I, I'm... Is it Trimbaganian? I think we've, we've used several different yeah. variations of this right now, uh, like, throughout the podcast. Complaints on a postcard. I, I, I understood it to be Trinidadian, but... Uh, but that's just Trinidad. Though. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, complaints cost sure, five, sure. five euro, uh, so please... Yes. But yes, so the, the... But Carnival definitely comes from the, the Catholic tradition of you're not going to do anything bad for 40 days, starting from Ash Wednesday till Easter. So you need to get it all out of your system by right. drinking heavily, dancing provocatively ah. on the street, uh, having fun, right. you know, uh, eating eating In... everything you want to eat that you shouldn't eat, and getting all your sins out. What I've what I've seen of of carnival in in uh, in Trinidad looks pretty. Um, uh, makes for good photographs. People are in crazy costumes, with feathers everywhere, and Joe's getting the vapors, listeners. He's getting them vapors. <laughs> so that's a big tourism draw. For people, people looking for a, a Mardi Gras speed, we'll for sure include some of those photos in the in the show notes. The suitable for work ones we'll include in the in the show notes. Carnival uh, in London actually means this kind of carnival because it comes from the West Indian oh, of course. Uh, immigration to Notting Hill. So Notting Hill Carnival is a huge thing in London every year with enormous like uh, pageantry yeah. and stuff like that as well. But it, it all comes from the the, the West Indian uh, tradition of, of carnival. There's an element of masquerade in it as well, where there's some political elements of like people dress up in kind of costumes that are mocking current affairs that goes on the Monday before Ash Wednesday called the Old Mass. That sounds kind of cool. Yep. I, I came across a, a blog by a, some American guy who, who was his partners from Trinidad and he eventually got brought to to Carnival. 
And he, he had an interesting insight. But he's basically saying that like once they, they set some songs for that year's carnival and then they're blasted over the airways for a few weeks before and everyone knows all of the oh, nice. the carnival songs and they develop dance routines in their different bands That's for the songs. So like it's meant to look really impressive as people parade through the city. They're like not necessarily synchronized, but there's a real like nobody's hearing this for the first time, uh, which yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't like this one. I don't know this. Let's, I'll say this one out. That sounds great, but in in my in my Western mind, that that reminds me of Christmas, to where you hear Christmas songs all the way up until the day of Christmas, and yeah. then by, by by the time you get to that point, you're sort of sick of them. But these are different every year, though. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. And they're quite exciting songs. Like they're kind of heavy beats, sure. sort of calypso, yeah. soca. Not the same stuff. songs every year. Every year for you know fifty yeah. years on end. One thing I want to mention that I mentioned in the intro is the Trinidad Scorpion, oh, yeah. which is native to Trinidad and Tobago and was regarded as one of the hottest chilies in the world. And according to the Scoville scale, I don't know if any of you guys have heard yeah. of this, but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. it's a scale that measures spiciness, basically. The Trinidad Scorpion has an average heat of over 1.2 million Scoville heat units, or SHUs. And as a comparison, if you if you never heard of this this scale, a jalapeno uh, has a ra- an SHU of around two and a half thousand to eight thousand. Okay, so it's right? quite a bit hotter. Yeah, it's very hot. Uh, there's a, a variation, I believe, of this pepper called the Butch Tea Scorpion, and that was nice. for three years ranked the hottest pepper in the world according to the Guinness World Book of Records, measuring in at around one point four million SHUs. I'll pass, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. It, it actually looks if you if you look at images of this thing, it looks like a scorpion sting. Cool, tastes like one too. Yes, it's gonna poke a hole in your stomach. So, can, can we do a quick circle of uh, of top favorite Trinidad and Tobagan uh, celebrities where we, Let's each, go. we pick our Let's favorite go. and just kind of go in a yeah. circle? Joe, do you want to go? Who, who's your most favorite? Ooh. Okay, I'm going to start with uh, Winifred Atwell, who was a boogie-woogie pianist who was the first black person to have a number one hit in the UK in the 50s. All right. Okay. Put that on your LinkedIn profile. Boogie woogie penis. Luke? For me, it's got to be Dwight York. Nice. As I, I think you know, Mark, Yorkie. or you guys might both know, I'm a long-suffering Aston Villa fan. Uh, Dwight York is a, is a footballer who played prominently for Man United and also Aston Villa and was born in Tobago in 1971. Was signed up by Graham Taylor, who was Aston Villa manager in 1989, after he appeared against the team in a friendly match on a tour of the West Indies and became sort of a, a legend, a, a very regular goal scorer, and then was signed for Man United in 1998 for 12.6 million, which was then a club record, and made 72 official appearances for the national squad, scoring 26 goals. He was a footballing legend, still is a footballing legend, but yeah, was a was a very, very famous name in his time. Hmm. What about you, Mark? I'll go for the cricket one. Brian Lara, arguably, or maybe inarguably, one of the best cricketers of all time. He had the record of most career runs until he was overtaken by Sachin Tendulkar. And he still holds the record for the highest individual score in a game at an even 400 runs. That would be an enormous score for a team. Oh, right. He, he scored that yeah. on his own. Oh, I see. Uh, he's also third uh, in that same list with 375. He was a very good batsman. Mm. And he also has the uh, the record for most runs in an over. Well, every six balls is an over. But he scored something like 28 runs you're, you're, off six balls. You're, con- you're confusing the Americans, Mark. 
he he's mm. very very good at cricket. Is very the point. good. Uh, and their list of famous Trinidadians is, is a lot of people who are very good at cricket. Oh, it's so good. But I know very little about cricket. So. Yeah. Same year. I, I wanted to mention a few musicians. Go on, Joe. A guy called Hadaway was born in Trinidad. Yes, yeah. yes. What is love? Baby, Baby don't hurt me. <laughs> that guy. Wow. That guy, his debut single. Okay. I never really got his mojo back after that, but he's he's from uh, he's from Trinidad. Had his big break in Germany. Yep. Then also uh, actor Winston Duke, who you might know from Black Panther. He's a M'Baku in Black Panther. Yeah. Oh, he's also yeah. from Jordan Peele's oh, latest dude. movie, Us. Right. He, yeah, he's... Yeah. He's from Trinidad. Uh, and also Nicki Minaj was born in Port of Spain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Also Billy Ocean, as in the when the going gets tough guy. Oh. He, he's also, yeah. When the going gets tough, you go to Trinidad, I guess, or Tobago. And then uh, Cardi B and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are both of uh, Tr- Trimbagonian descent. Oh, right. So, Very good. All right. It's just everyone. Musical powerhouse, yeah. sounds can, like. Can I mention, uh, I have a list of favorite Calypso yeah. names. Uh, can, can I, can go I share? It. Go for it. So I have I have Black Stalin. I have Black Stalin. Too. Uh, oh, Black <laughs> Stalin. Uh, okay, do you do you want to name one then, Joe? It's not fair for me to hunt. Mighty Shadow. Mighty Shadow. Yeah, I I had him. Uh, Jerry Bedknob. <laughs> uh, he's one of mine. Keep going. Attila the Hun. Obviously. Attila the Hun. Uh, Mighty Panther. I picked a list of Mighties. Can I can I list my Mighties? Okay. Mighty Panther. Mighty Terror. Mighty Shadow. Mighty Spoiler. And Mighty Sparrow. But yeah, it seems like having a good stage name is a, is an important part of uh, of Calypso. And I... I Might be 90% I, of it, it I seems. Have a lot of a lot of reading to do on that. Like, I mean, I, I'm now fascinated by Calypso and wish we'd just done an episode on Calypso. Yeah. Minisode in the future, maybe? Yeah. Is, is, is there anyone else for any more? Oh, no. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I think, think I'm, done. I'm, I'm, I'm done, yeah. The bag's yep. empty. Cool. Oh, just to mention, sorry, uh, sports, cricket's big, uh, also football to an extent. And they're pretty good at the Olympics. Uh, they, they, they've a good old haul of medals. It, you know, not so much that it's worth no- noting, not so little that you need to feel bad for them. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're good at sports. They're proportionately good. All right. Music and sports. Good stuff. All right. Find more episodes of this podcast wherever you typically get your podcasts. We're on Spotify and everywhere else you find podcasts. You can also take a look at our website, adapodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with us you can find us on facebook twitter or instagram under slash or at 80 days podcast you can get in touch with us directly by email at 80 days podcast at gmail.com as so many of you do now it's very nice to hear from people yeah we're, we've been getting more and more fan yeah. feedback we also get messages from we've had a couple of messages recently on instagram and people adding us to their stories and stuff we really appreciate that uh, you know, please tell your friends if you're listening. And steady stream of threats, threats of violence upon our person. Yeah, that's yes, nice yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's when you know you made it. If you want to help out the show, you can leave us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. It helps the visibility of the show massively. And you can also support us if you have a couple of dollars to throw our way. You can visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast to support the show and get a couple of extra perks and access to our show notes and, uh, you know, maybe even be sent a postcard from uh, a faraway place please check that out if you have the the time and the financial capability to to donate towards the show we'd really appreciate it i'd appreciate it if for instance you were an oil baron um, a trinidadian oil yes, baron for sure and speaking of oil barons we have to give a shout out to a few wonderful folks who throw their funds into much more niche investments such as helping independent podcasters to fund their shows new patrons this month include john fitzpatrick fred turkington and Asaf, Liam, and James Graff. 
If you want to get involved, uh, become a patron and take advantage of the bonus content that we put out, please go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, or you can simply follow the link in the show notes. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? Timetoburn.com has has some things about me. You'll find my Twitter handle there, which is difficult to spell. And Mark? You can find me on Twitter at, at MarkBoyle86. I am at my website, LukeJKelly.com, or on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. What is love? Baby, don't hurt.